Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. You uh, worked with a band on, on this record and also on stage today. Oh, yeah. Does that change the way you play the piano? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, uh, you can't just... Um, go off half-cocked on your own and say, well, I'm going to make up, you know, 24 bars here of whatever because I can't breathe. So, um, you know, the audience doesn't have to know I'm, like, ready to have a cardiac. And now I can't really do that. Again, we go back to it's not just about me anymore. I have to be aware of of where it's going. And, and um, you have to work as a team. Again, it's not they're just supporting me. It's very much about a conversation between four people. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts. I'm Efren Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on today's episode, we're talking about Black Dove January, the third song from Tori's fourth album, From the Choir Girl Hotel. David. Hey, Eve. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm excited. About what? About Black Dove. Oh. It's a stormy day for a stormy song. It is a stormy day in Los Angeles, a rare stormy day. Well, I'm excited to dive into this song because frankly, I kind of forget that there's a studio version. Really? Not forget, but I associate the live version so strongly with this era mm. and the plug tour that that kind of takes precedence in my mind. Really? Yeah. You forget there's a studio version. Kind of. Have you heard of this hot new album called From the Choir Girl Hotel? Yeah, red hot. <laughs> hot off the presses. Coming in hot right after uh, Safe Ferris and <laughs> Flagpole Sitta. Do you remember Chumbawamba? Of course. You get knocked down. I get up again. Never going to keep you down. So I'm thrilled that we've made it here to Black Dove January. All the way to track three. But in order to get here, we've had to go through a lot. We've had to go through the voice for Pele B-sides. We've had to go through the little earthquakes reimagining. Tori doesn't even know. Tori doesn't, doesn't even know, know what, what it takes through. to get through her own catalog. <laughs> when I first started the wild visioning of this podcast, I was always intimidated by the big songs. I still am, you know. I'm intimidated by the songs that have a lot of things, like Professional Widow. But I'm also, I was also really intimidated by Cruel from the very beginning, like, how am I going to get to Cruel and then do Cruel? Like all the Pip stuff and trying to parse through all that? Well, now you can just relax. Yeah. Calm down. Yeah, the rest, from here to the end. Take it easy. Native Invader and through 2020's alleged double album. Double? Well, that's why I heard a rumor. This is, you're spreading that rumor. I know. <laughs> what is this, Moccasin? The album actually is called Moccasin. <laughs> can you imagine if she was so fresh out of ideas that she was stealing ours? Yeah, <laughs> she's listening to the show. <laughs> moccasin. It's a, like a moccasin. Write that down. What was the first time you heard Black Dove January? It 
must have been, or in fact, I know it was, on tape in my car from a bootleg copy of the album, courtesy of Dor Dotson. Don't worry, I bought it on release day, just like everyone else. <laughs> and I do remember, I was looking forward to this song because I knew that she was opening with it. So I figured it was kind of an important track mm-hmm. um, on the album. And I'd read that weird review I mentioned on the Cruel episode where someone said, it's Bells for Her meets Cornflake Girl. Which couldn't and I was be like, further from reality. I could kind of see it with like the eerie, just kind of solo intro that kind of breaks into a rock song. Like, if you were going to pull two Tory songs out of the ether to compare it to, I guess that kind of makes sense. At the time, maybe. But, yeah, at the time. But this is, even though it's like more of a straight-ahead rock song than Tori had probably ever released before, it still sounded like her. It wasn't as shocking to me as Cruel, for example. I don't know. What do you think? What was the first time I, you heard it? I agree with you there. The first time I heard it was immediately following my first listening, Cruel, on May 5th, 1998, in my little apartment with my friend Liz and Heather, my lesbian friends. Um, you were generous to listen to it in a group. I would have never I shared I didn't my listen first to tour it experience. Heather. Okay. No, I listened to it with Liz. I remember like laying in my bed and she was like standing in the doorway. I prefer to explore a new Tory the same way I explored my body for the first time. <laughs> By myself. <laughs> On videotape. In the dark. <laughs> So the first time I heard it, I loved it. I've never, until this very moment, considered it a straight-up rock song. Really? Never. Well, I, what would you have called it? The theme song from The Darkest Fairy Tale. Mm, it is a dark fairy tale. It that, is I was going to say that, dark. too. I remember right after I was living in Las Vegas. This was the year 2000, so two years later, I guess. I don't know how to play piano, and I've never really got to take lessons, but I knew how to read music because of my five years as a trombonist. So I ended up taking the From the Choir Girl Hotel sheet music, and I was at like a guitar center kind of place, and there was a, an actual Kurzweil keyboard, and I didn't know anything about playing the piano but i knew where middle c was who doesn't from playing leather from playing beauty queen i knew how to get to g yeah so i played the first chord of black dove january which i thought was the most beautiful song i still to this day think it's the most beautiful song i was able to finger position myself and understand a piano chord and played it and the moment i hit it i gave myself chills i was like (gasps) i was very excited oh my god i'm picturing you like on the goonies organ the giant bone organ from goonies have you seen Goonies? Have I seen Goonies? For once, you're Martha Plimpton and not me. And <laughs> <laughs> even though she's not the character playing it. Anyway, you opened a gateway by playing Black Dove in Guitar Center. Something happened. I opened a rift into heaven. A rift into time and space. I love the song. You? I sure. Okay. <laughs> Is that a no? I don't throw around the word love as much as you do. When I I say it, I mean it. I don't throw the word around either. I genuinely love this song. This song brings me such comfort. You're just more generous than I am. That's fine. I'm very not. I'm definitely not. Okay. (laughs) I love this song. What do you love about it? The muted pads. That mallet piano Mm -hmm. just makes me feel like this song is so understated and eerie, and I love the rhythm. I just love the vibe. I love the tone of the song. Mm. If I were tone, if I were somehow transmuted into tone and atmosphere, I would be blacked off. That's a fun game. I've played it myself. Like if my DNA or my soul were fed into a machine that could translate into song, Mm -hmm. what song would it be? Yeah, I know what song you'd be. What? Pretty Good Year. Oh, that's actually like very meaningful to me. (laughs) I'll take it. I was just saying what I thought you were going to say. Oh, no, I want... Oh, what song would I choose? Let's pretend that that's what you think I would be. Okay, yeah. Okay, good. Pretty Good good Year. We're agreed. Pretty Good Smear. (laughs) 
There's like a little turmoil in there, but it's yeah. actually just like for the most part pristine Melodic. and pretty and comforting. What, yeah. what song would I be? That's a good question. I'm going to think about it because I don't take this kind of thing lightly. I don't have an answer right off the top of my head. Ask me again at the end of the episode. Okay, if I remember. I'm hoping you won't. So should we get on with it? Yes, we should. Okay, it's about time. I know. Thank you for listening. Shall we say hello to our new Patreon supporters? Yes. Well, David, we have been working so hard and it took us a long time for Cruel, but hardly no time whatsoever for Black Dove. So we only have one to speak of. And it's in fact, not a new supporter, but a classic. We love a classic. It's Laura Crum, who's edited her pledge and jumped up to our $25 level. Oh, man. Laura, this episode's for you. Laura Crum is our number one. Laura Crum is our number one. <laughs> Good joke. Worked really hard on it. Thanks, Laura. We really appreciate the support. And thanks to all of our Patreon supporters, new and classic. We love you. And of course, we would be nowhere without the lovely Shay Stymac, who single-handedly put together our research document. Shay never let on how insane it was. Black Dove Shanuary. <laughs> Shay was a January girl. She was a Shanuary girl. <laughs> Thank you, Shay. Thanks, Shay. Should we talk about our guests, David? Yes. Who do we got? Today, we have two people who are going to school us in Black Dove. Oh, finally, we get a sub. We can just take it <laughs> we easy. We have two teachers. <laughs> we have Miss Amber E. and Mr. Eric Reed. Hi, Miss Amber. Hi, Mr. Reed. <laughs> yes. These are two teachers who are also fans of the Dove. They have a love of the Dove. Is there going to be a test at the end? I hope so. A pop quiz. We've been studying for this for 26 years. Years, <laughs> at least. Well, since it came out 22 years ago. That's true. Yeah. We pre-studied. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Though Mr. Reed and Miss E may not give us a test, we do have 10 questions for Michael Carley. Mm. So we're going to give him a test. Okay. We're going to learn all that we can from the professionals, and then we're going to... Apply it. Apply it to... The next generation. Yeah. It's going to yes. be practical application. I think no matter what, David, I think for the rest of time until we're done, every album cycle, we should have one person that's much younger than us on every episode. Well, like that how we should have be Pele easy. Baby and how we have 10 <laughs> questions with Michael Carley. Uh-huh. So that by the time we get to Native Invader, we'll have someone who's our age now. Why don't we just adopt a baby? Oh, well, we should. And we can do an experiment. Not together. Like what happens when you fully indoctrinate a, a baby into Tory fandom? You raise them as gender Tory. How do they gender tour? <laughs> yeah. How do they turn out? I think that'd be great. <laughs> we did try to get Lisa B on the show. You remember Lisa B, David? Sure do. How do you know her? From life. From tour all year. From tour. From tour from all year. From the tour, the bore <laughs> tour all year. Uh huh. We did try to get Lisa because she has a not a helicopter tattoo, but she was unavailable, sadly. And it's interesting because when I listen to the song, the only face I see is Lisa's. But it's made of ice and you can see your hand through it. Me too. <laughs> I can see my hand through her face. <laughs> it's a crazy time right now and we shouldn't shy away from it. You know, we're not recording in a bubble. You didn't get the bubble? No, Remember I should. how I... much Karen Bins and you were into that movie? I ordered it on Amazon. It hasn't arrived yet. <laughs> Okay. But I got the deluxe model with the microphones already inside. Okay, good. Yeah. We're not living in a bubble. We are recording this in the time of COVID-19 for future generations that wonder why we never finished Choir Girl. Right. Or cause... for the aliens who find this. Yeah. LA is on lockdown almost, not officially, but almost. And the best thing that we know how to do is just to record and to do what we do. So now that we have a little bit more time on our hands, that's how we're looking at it as like a retreat. There's nothing I'd rather be doing. This yeah. is the best use of my time I can possibly think of. And if you guys aren't listening to Never Shut Up, we're doing something right now, which I call Not Tonight Quarantine, <laughs> where... <laughs> 
Peter came up with that. Every day of the quarantine, we're, I'm talking to someone new. Well, maybe not new every day, like someone different every day, and then we'll overlap. But who knows how long the quarantine's going to last? I know. I was going to say, I hope there are a lot of volunteers. So if you're not subscribed to Never Shut Up, which is our daily Tori Amos show, we're just going to be taking the social temperature during this time, during this really scary, really weird time. And all we can do is talk about it. That's all we know how to do. Well, I think that's a nice way to keep in touch with our Drive All Night family, too. Because yeah. I happen to live by myself, so I wouldn't mind something like a phone call yeah. from someone. <laughs> <laughs> hint, Stop hint. hinting, David. <laughs> so if you're interested in being on the Never Shut Up show, first of all, head over to iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to Never Shut Up, where we're doing our Not Tonight Quarantine series, which is a great title. Come on. It's brilliant. Thanks to Peter Zimmerman for that. But I'm going to change the logo. It's going to say Never Never shut up. The not tonight quarantine papers. Yeah. Can it be in like a Walking Dead, Dead Inside scrawl font? I've never seen The Walking Dead. It's not worth it. Oh, okay. <laughs> no time on earth. No. <laughs> so go do that. Go subscribe to Never Shut Up. We want to really keep the coronavirus chit chat there because this isn't really the place for it, but we do want to keep talking about it and just keep connected with each other. So go over there and subscribe to Never Shut Up. So let's get on with it then, yes? Okay. I'll follow you. Through Tordor? Mm-hmm. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> This is a cover of Black Dove by Marcel Robinson from the book Tori Amos for Fingerstyle Guitar. There's also a CD, and that's why you're hearing it right now. January was one of the first songs that I connected with when I randomly decided to borrow the copy from the Fargo Hotel from my college radio station. What I loved about Black Dove is that it didn't sound like anything else that I'd ever listened to. It's very mysterious. And to me, it's about somebody who's overcome a lot of things. And sometimes you don't know what all everybody has ever been through until you really get to know them. And that's what this song means to me. But it also um, is especially relevant for me because I was born in January. I am a January girl, and I guess I never do let on how insane it was in my tiny kind of scary house by the woods, by the woods, by the woods. So thank you guys for doing what you do, and can't wait to hear this episode about Black Goat. might just be the lack of sleep talking, but my friend Tatiana and I were discussing um, Black Swan and Black Dove, and we want to know, like, the connections and or differences between the two. I always think I've been drawn to um, the darker side of things, you know, the shadows. Sometimes the ones that aren't always invited to the party are the ones that are understood. I think with just being a musician since I was a little girl, and a lot of you I know are artists, your work isn't understood, and um, you don't really fit into normal quote-unquote society and say what you're supposed to do and do what you're supposed to do in this whole PC world. I just find it ridiculous. 
These people, right, who are so politically correct, they go in. Are you ready for this, Pete? I know you're ready for this. I'm ready. They go in, and then they live this. They perform PC. They mm. perform spirituality. And then they treat their co-workers like crap. They're not, you know... They're not compassionate people. And then they, uh, they get mad at people that have everything pierced on their body. Or, or God knows. But, you know, they make these judgments. Um, and some of the most wonderful people don't look like, quote-unquote, your normal people. They don't fit into this box. Right. You hear that from a lot of artists, and we have tried for a long time to pull off the just we're misunderstood artists, but in fact, our ratings are just low. That's what. It, that's the difference there. Blocked of January is the third track from Tori's fourth album from the Quagro Hotel, with drums by Matt Chamberlain, bass by Justin Meldel Johnson, electric mandolin and acoustic guitars by Steve Caton, and sample mallet piano, Busendorfer, and vocal by Tori Amos. Mm. Always has to one-up everybody. I know. She's like, oh, you got three, I'll do four. I'm going to sing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? She's like, why did you sing this one, Maddie? Matt, without uh, warning. I just know. take it. You know what's interesting is that most female-led bands, the men do sing backup sometimes. Or mm-hmm. like, you know, they do the ooze or something. Never. She would once. never. She would never. She would ask one man at a time. Right. Maybe by the name of Damien or Trent. Right, exactly. And she would dial them way down in the mix. So the fact that they contributed is barely audible. Right, but she'll know that they did. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think after they walked off stage at the Rain Benefit, she was furious with Maynard? She's like, we talked about (laughs) this. Don't you ever take cover. This song appears on From the Quagra Hotel, five different promo CDs from the U.S., Germany, and beyond. It also appears on the official release from the Quagra Hotel, not just the promo. Oh. And then we never see it again until 2007 on six different legs and boots, Detroit, Michigan, Indianapolis, Fort Myers, Clearwater, Houston, and Boise. It's not on a piano. It's not on a piano, which mm. is a crime against tormanity. I agree. There are a few glaring omissions from a piano, and I rank them as follows. Space Dog, yeah. Tallulah, and Black Dove. Black Dove. It appears one more time in her catalog on her live DVD, Live from the Artist's Den, recorded in 2009. Black Dove, Black Dove, you're not a That's the sparse history of Black Dove. Yeah. Now do you see why I associate it so strongly with live performances? I see you, David. Turn away. Stop. Don't look at me. I'm hideous. (laughs) This is one of the few songs that if she played an entire set of just this song, I would not get bored. This is one of the songs I can listen to on repeat for hours. You're saying if Tori walked out and played Black Dove 16 times, you'd be cool with it? I would be cool with it. Okay. And I would find the minute differences in each. Would you prefer to hear Black Dove 16 times in a row or to hear one 90-minute version of Black Dove? (laughs) 16 times in a row. Same. Because I like the climax. I like Mm. the the arc of the song it's a really unique structure of the song right yeah with the piano break and everything yeah like so powerful. where things are placed in the song and, and the way the repeats happen so we'll talk about that when we get to the musical mm-hmm. interpretation or the musical analysis mm-hmm. but when you think it's gonna zig it zags exactly that and you know what other song does that which chattering sea oh chattering sea you think it's gonna go one way and then it's like twists and turns and bends mm-hmm. yeah that is not my bridge. That is not my joke on the cutting room floor. <laughs> Isn't it, though? I named it It that. always is. I know. I named it that as a nod to it was your joke. We sp- 
We speak your name. Should we get into our quotes? Let's quote it. I love it. quoting. I love quoting Tori Amos. One of these days, just to be surprising like Black Dove, we should quote someone who's not Tori. Right. <laughs> we should just do quotes from a whole other artist about a whole other song. Yeah. And this is what Stevie Nicks has to say about Edge of Seventeen. <laughs> well, just like the white winged dove. Just like the white black dove. She sings a song just like a Tori singing. Just Ooh. like a white black dove. <laughs> This is from Attitude Magazine, May 1998. You know those guys in Reservoir Dogs? They live in my dreams, she continues, contorting herself into yet another position on the armchair. Not that I've actually seen that movie, but I do have a very violent dream world. It's not always fun. Sometimes I don't make it out of there, you know? Like I wake up and they got me. It's like, adopts cartoonish little girl lost voice. Uh-oh, quit it. Tea break. <laughs> I don't get that. Tori has in the past talked about nightmares. She's talked about being cursed with this like violent dream world. What do you think about that? Before I jump into that, I'd like to say it's very strange that she keeps pointing out reservoir dogs. I agree. It is a little strange because she mentions it often. But what I think is even more strange is that here she says, not that I've actually seen that movie. Yeah. It would be if I suddenly started referencing what men want all the time. It'd be like, clearly you don't. I love that movie. Do you? <laughs> no, I've never seen it. But I don't talk about it either, Tori. Mm. I guess her impression of Reservoir Dogs is what she's referring to here. Ultraviolent, maybe? Possibly. I don't, yeah. At the time, let's remember, that was, what, 1994? Yeah. It was a thing. It was topical. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was current. Uh-huh. Something to be said about Black Dove, though, is that I feel like it's a very successful translation of a nightmare. I feel like I'm in a nightmare when I listen to it. I feel like I'm in a, like we've said dark fairy tale, but that's because it's like, it's a very dark song. It's very evocative of a, I'm Hansel or I'm Gretel about to be eaten by the witch. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel that. Particularly the beginning, of course, but I think the choruses and the bridge are are rousing Mm -hmm. and then it kind of takes a change there. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You want to read this quote from Rock Etc. on May 18th, 1998? I had the engineers watch and re-watch the movie Fargo. That's a fascinating movie made in North Dakota with all those thunderstorms and the ice and the car that comes driving from the range. There is such an excitement in the situation, you know? The car will soon be there, but it ain't there yet. But you know that you don't know if you really want it to come, but you can't stop it. The car comes driving straight to you. And I want a black dove to carry this ice world. And I said to the guys, I see a black dove in front of me. You see her face, but the black dove is made of ice. She is transparent. If you bore into her, she bleeds water, not red blood. You can see your hand through the blood, and that's what I want to hear. Wow. This is almost as clear to me as the brain. Yep. Yeah, the Caudalite sneeze, the brain. Carrying around this picture of the brain. And I see that in the song. I and, Yeah. And in both cases, she was striving for transparency. Have you ever seen a black dove? Is there such a thing? Well, there seems to be. The black cuckoo dove, also known as the slady cuckoo dove, is a species of bird in the family Columbidae. It is endemic to the islands of Timor and Watar. Its natural habitats are subtropical or tropical dry forest and subtropical or tropical moist lowland forest, and it is threatened by habitat loss. You think Tori knew that? No, I don't. I think that this idea of a black dove, the way she describes it as being like a crystal clear black dove, like bleeding water, Mm -hmm. that translucence that you just mentioned, I think it was just a complete vision onto herself like she had this vision of a black dove i do like that it's also known as the slady dove slady not (laughs) quite so black just a little slady has tori ever paired black dove and black swan of course it seems like something she would do i don't even have to research i could tell you almost entirely sure yes okay do you think Uh, she'll ever write a part three to her black bird trilogy i hope so what would it be oh my god mary's ravens maybe she's done it oh wow it's happening 
Oh, my word. Mm. From Us Magazine, July 1998. Tori says, I felt the song coming from across the galaxies to find me. It was busy doing something, disagreeing with Jabba the Hutt somewhere, and then it tore across the universe when I was in a really bad way. Choir Girl is not a victim's record. It is very much about appreciating the life force and trying to connect with this being I had become connected to but I can't find anymore. I never really considered this a very spacey, sci-fi, Venusy song, but it does reference spaceships and galaxies, and now she's talking about Jabba the Hutt. Mm-hmm. That kind of shifts things a little bit for me. I don't know. What do you think? I think that she didn't have any other way of saying something in another galaxy or relating to another galaxy, so she just chose that sort of Star Wars mm-hmm. metaphor. Because the way she says it, disagreeing with Jabba the Hutt somewhere, it was busy doing something, just saying that it was out of this world, and it came shooting through her, mm-hmm. like through the little redhead with the little string, and that same yeah. kind of idea. Which makes me think that on the other side of the galaxy references the song itself, like references the world that's coming to her. Mm. But because of this quote, I'm guessing this might be one of the songs that came to her fully formed or almost fully formed. That's possible. This song, more than any of the others on this album, aside from maybe a raspberry swirl, seems kind of out of step with the subject matter she's exploring. And that sort of shores up her insistence that there's no thematic link necessarily between the songs and Mm. sequencing doesn't matter and that they live independently. I think that's especially true of Black Dove. Really? It seems like kind of an odd man out to me. Really? Yeah. No. Mm. No, not to me at all. To me, this seems like one of the backbones of this album in terms of linking to the loss, the tragedy, the grief. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay. I'm ready for it. I can't wait. I'm ready to figure it out too. I'm ready (laughs) to see the other side. You want to read from Music Monitor, September 1998? Mm -hmm. You've used the term playing your wound to describe what you do as far as playing to deal with the pain. I would use a song such as Black Dove as an example of this. Do you ever wonder what would happen to your music if that wound heals? I think the wound is healing. I don't really know where it's going from here, but my goal is to be as aware as I can be. I'm sure that when I'm 80, I'll still be working on stuff I didn't even know I needed to work on. I'm getting more of a sense of humor as I've accepted my life. It's hard to say as a writer where your work is going, but I think if you're always trying to pioneer and discover, the inner world is as rich as the outer world, and deep space, nobody even knows how to measure that. I think the inner world is filled with so many unknowns. I really enjoy exploring that, the things we hide. It will come out differently with each album. If it didn't, it would mean that I'm not growing as a person, and that wouldn't interest me, not growing. I do think we're already starting to see her fascination with space developing here. I don't think that's uncommon. I think she's kind of already usually reaching into her next project or album when she's promoting the current album so we can feel the promo cycle of one album so we can moved on musically yeah Yeah. so we can kind of see her fascination with space beginning Mm -hmm. here and she's starting to use that vocabulary Mm -hmm. so and i do feel like musically black dove is a thread to venus it's not too far off from like a lust or a suede i could see that especially because the songwriting on venus seemed to be such a product of her experience playing with the band Mm -hmm. and i feel like she was almost writing the songs for them and Mm -hmm. because black dove was such an integral part of that tour and that show that the dna of that would really find its way into the next batch of songs that makes sense to me yeah and they seem to love playing this song together Mm -hmm. and obviously they felt it was strong enough to open the sneak preview tour with and they wouldn't have done that if it wasn't like their hardest number at that time Mm -hmm. you know the one that they felt most confident with the one that just really translated live and i can see venus is the most close to being like a band record like an actual band recording together Mm -hmm. here's a quote from details magazine august 1998 tori amos is out of this world by william shaw back 
backstage, Tori is channeling the energy. I'm really trying to zone in, says the platinum-selling pianist and singer. It's early May, the last night of her Plug 98 dates, a warm-up for this summer's world tour to support her fourth album from the Choir Girl Hotel. Matt Chamberlain, the drummer in her new band, is noodling away on his practice kit. As she listens, Tori decides that the music is coming from somewhere other than the drums, somewhere older than the Wilshire Theater in Beverly Hills. She says she feels the energy coming up to her, rising up from the ground under the theater through Matt's kick drum. You know, she says, this really makes me wonder what was here before all this. What is underneath this? The second she walks on stage to her piano and synthesizer to sit splay-legged in cargo pants, the screams start. We love you, Tori. The Plug 98 tour is strictly for fans. They have broader gifts, flowers, and letters, or little presents like small pots of lip gloss, something Tori uses incessantly, and which she writes about, too, as a symbol of womanhood. One fan has brought her a pair of homemade angel wings. A few girls have dyed their hair red to match Tori's. Actually, Tori's famous red is bottle-fed, too. Then Tori starts to play Black Dove January, an unfathomable, dreamlike song about a girl that lives in a sinister house by the woods and the screaming subsistence sides as the fans listen i'm just picturing splay legged in cargos the yeah. way i am right now i love how it's just like he's so deep in in his writing of the fans and their adoration but the moment he talks about the song it's like oh it's just about a girl at a house well he does house. say he says unfathomable that's unfathomable. pretty good <laughs> unspeakable I can't, I can't fathom someone writing this song i feel that way about tori most of the time so yeah, i get it she's unfathomable yeah Dreamlike. But yeah, I don't feel like the fans were painted in the most flattering light. This was the era of the fans not being painted in the most flattering light. We did it to ourselves. Well, not you did it to yourself. And that's what really hurts. <laughs> so anyhow, this is from Ur, September 18th, 1999. What a good day that was. Do you remember what you were doing on September 18th, 1999? I was reaching across the galaxy wishing you a happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> I felt it. I felt it. The record was not planned. They're talking about Venus here. The record was not planned. She only had to come up with two songs for her compilation record with B-sides and outtakes. But everyone's surprised she made 11 brand new songs. In Tori's case, it has everything to do with magic, especially the angels who wake her up many times when she has nightmares to whisper in melodies. All the music already exists somewhere. Artists are only the people who translate it. That's why we have to be thankful we have our own music rights. There is a creative force we're a part of. Look, this here... Waves around her arms. ...is called reality, okay? This is three-dimensional, and this exists. But there are also other worlds, worlds I don't have to create, but who I can hear, and that I try to translate. In those worlds, I live too. Everybody can, but what happens sometimes is that some artists are getting confused and think they create it all themselves. They're getting drunk off that, and then you've got a problem. Then people die from drugs, because when you're a translator and you begin to think that everything is coming out of you, then you're getting burnt alive. You won't make it. Recklessness means the end, because you can't fool the muse. She will fool you. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit on the Cruel episode about Tori's ability to kind of intuit or tap into something. And sometimes when a song comes to her, let's say, she doesn't even necessarily know what it's about mm -hmm. at the time mm -hmm. or how it relates to her current experience or mm -hmm. how it might relate to a, a future experience. And I kind of love that. And not to get too metaphysical, but, you know, looking you can at... never get too metaphysical. Not on this show. But looking at this quote, you know, there are people who sort of propose that there are ideas available to many kind of floating in the creative ether 
And if you don't grab it first, someone else will. And that's kind of where I was going on Cruel when we talked about Tori out there with her big net. Yeah. Like I was kind of kidding, but not really. Like she grabs Cruel, let's say, and then translates it through her experience. So it'll look like it wouldn't look if someone else had grabbed it. But it's still kind of like this big fish out there that one can grab. And I feel like that's kind of what she's saying in this quote, too, that these songs are all kind of floating in the interdimensional ether. Right. And if you grab onto it, like you kind of not luck out, but you get first dibs. Yeah, but it's I also, t- you know, I agree that she is saying that. And I also think she's saying it's about ego, too, which is like if you don't honor that you have nothing to do with it, that it's just coming through you. Yeah. If you think it's coming out of you, meaning you think you're responsible for this rather than you're just translating it, mm-hmm. then that's where the ego starts to come in. And that's where when you can't, the muse will turn on you and then you won't be able to create and then you'll think that you've lost it and that'll lead to a world of pain yep but if you honor the muse and say oh you are there i'm just translating it that's what she's meaning Mm. and she's always been very good about that she has been yeah i'm a Mm co-creator i'm a translator yeah i'm a scribe i'm a (laughs) vessel i'm a bitch i'm a mother i'm a (laughs) child i'm a lover this is from columbia house magazine Ooh, columbia house did you ever pull a racket on Columbia House? I never subscribed to never? any of those music clubs. Shut up. I know. I ran a racket on all of them. You're still on the hook for money, probably. Probably. My eleven ninety nine for 12 CDs. <laughs> How did you run a racket? Um, I recommended my friend, Pierce Chappelle. Mm-hmm. Who is not a real person. Who was me. Uh-oh. It was Crystal Chappelle, my favorite soap opera star with the last name of my middle school crush, Robert Pierce. Wow. But it was Pierce Chappelle. Wow. That is a great name. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> Whoever's sending CDs to a 12-year-old does not really expect to get paid. You got what you deserved. Yeah. <laughs> From Columbia House Magazine, spring 1999, I try to rise up and meet life's challenges. Oftentimes, you look at yourself and say, badly done. But sometimes you look at yourself and say, you know, we didn't turn away from this one. Whether you work through something with a friend or with a lover, instead of just running away from it and pretending it didn't happen, I think that when you let the demons come, as they say, or the shadows, there have been things that I knew were about ready to walk through that door, and I would have done anything to not let them come through that door. And yet, that's where you really see that we're not in control of our fate. We're in control of our reactions to our fate. But the wolf will show up at your door sometime in your lifetime, and when it does, you can choose if you're going to be devastated by it or not. I choose not to be devastated. I choose to dance. I think that's a hard quote for me to hear. I've never heard her put it quite like that before, maybe. And I do subscribe to that belief as well, which is we're not in control of our fate, but we're in control of our reactions to our fate. Mm. Like the wolf will show up at the door sometimes. And the way you respond is the mark of your character, right? Like that's the kind of person you are. Not that this is happening to you, but that the way you respond to that reveals your character, I think. Do you believe in fate? I don't know if I do. I don't know. I believe that everything is going to happen is going to happen, but like anything else could happen too. So who knows? Anything that's going to happen is going to happen as in it's been predetermined to no, some extent? No, I don't know. I don't okay. think so. Like, All right. I don't don't get mad. I'm not mad. <laughs> um, Sometimes when you press Eve on certain beliefs, he gets real agitated and defensive. Just, I'm not mad. You're I'm, mad. You're mad. You believe in fate. <laughs> I want to get into this topic, but I want to get into this topic after we read the next quote. Okay. Because I think it will shed light on what I'm trying to say, and it'll allow me to say it better after we've read this quote. Fair so, enough. 
Do you mind if I read it, or do you, would you? Not like at to? all. This is from Die Zeit in Germany, which means the time, on November 11th, 1999. And she says, when I sleep, I often have nightmares. I can already hear your readers saying, I knew that. The way your songs sound, you must really have horrible nightmares. Just like the one I'm describing in the song Black Dove off my last album from the Choir Girl Hotel. I see a black dove. I see its face clearly. The dove is transparent, like it's made of ice. I can see my hand through it. An auger goes through it, and it is bleeding water. To get the same atmosphere musically, I had to describe a scene in the movie Fargo to my musicians. A car is coming towards the camera from a long distance, very slowly. You know it will arrive in a moment, but you hope that this will never happen. My nightmares are so bad that I mostly reject it when my friends want to take me to a cinema to watch a horror movie. Then I say, no thank you, I will dream in a few hours. Sometimes I feel like Herman Hesse's Steppenwolf... The nightmares have agonized me since my childhood. I am the daughter of a Methodist preacher, and as a child, I was sexually abused by a friend of the family. I think the nightmares are telling me things about me I need to know, and I try to understand what they mean. Maybe so I can get to know something more about my soul. So, I want to take it back to the quote prior where she says, We're not in control of our fate, we're in control of our reactions to our fate. But the wolf will show up at your door sometime in your lifetime. And when it does, you can choose if you are going to be devastated by it or not. I choose not to be devastated, I choose to dance. And I started by saying, I have a hard time with that quote, because when the wolf shows up at your door, you can be devastated or not, right? But the opposite of devastation is not to dance, I don't think. I think the opposite of devastation is acceptance. And like, you don't have to dance about it. You get what I'm saying. But acceptance to me means like no further action taken. Right. And to dance doesn't mean necessarily like celebration, but that you're going to kind of move with it and acknowledge that you can't control. Oh, okay, like a rubber band girl. Yeah. Kind okay. Of. <laughs> I don't know why I said yes so enthusiastically. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Like no, a rubber band girl. No, but I mean like girl. you're bending in the breeze. I get <laughs> yeah. it. That's different. To dance yes. with it is different. Not yes. to dance about it. Yes. Yeah. Like what am I going to do with it? I can only control my reaction. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the life's work, I think, when you have the wolf show up at your door, especially if you're such a young child. You know, that's your life's work to, I guess, accept it and then bend with it and be able to talk about it and be able to I guess bending with it means being able to move with it and be able to move on with this piece right yeah and should we delve a little bit more into that last quote too which we've read before on the show Mm -hmm. but it's more in context now because she's specifically talking about Black Dove Mm -hmm. and this is one of those moments here we are November 1999 she's promoting a totally different album and she just who knows exactly what prompted this she decides to dive in to Black Dove and I'll I'll say almost casually references an instance of sexual violence as a child, which to my knowledge, she's never mentioned before in her entire career. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she's ever mentioned it again, Mm -hmm. not in quite the same way. Mm -hmm. And that's bizarre to me because A, that's never been brought up. And the way that the fan base tends to glom on to everything that she mentions, I feel like I had never seen this mentioned or discussed anywhere. And I came across it myself and I was like, wait, what? That's Mm -hmm. new to me. So what do you think about that? I think maybe there's a freedom when she's in Europe and it was a different time, 1999. Things would get around, but not quite in the same way. So I feel like maybe when she was doing European press, she felt like she could speak a little bit more candidly Mm -hmm. and be a little safer. And maybe she felt really comfortable with the journalist or the mm. whoever was writing that article mm. or maybe the question prompted how she talked about choir girl which was like i can't come out there and promote spark and not say what happened because it's so linked to what happened and black dove came up for some reason and she's like i can't 
pivot around this without just being clear. And she said it in a clear way and moved on from it. Mm -hmm. She didn't dwell on it in this quote, right? Yeah. I don't know. It's it's interesting. And I, I believe that that's one of the pieces she keeps for herself. She doesn't need to tell, talk about it. She doesn't mm -hmm. need to tell us about it. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that she did hear and I'm glad... It brings context to the music because you get that from the music. You get that healing from the music. I think that's why it resonates so deeply with a mm -hmm. lot of us. And I think Tori uses, let's say, the Me and a Gun narrative or Me and a Gun the song to kind of talk about several instances mm -hmm. yeah. of sexual violence, yeah. not just the one we all kind of think about. And in that case, I think that's an instance of storytelling. And I don't say that to sort of like negate the experience or minimize it. I feel like that's her way of processing that experience. And it's neither here nor there, whether or not, let's say the lyrics of Mina Gun on Paper are factually true. Exactly. But that's how exactly. she's working through this experience. And as accessible as Tori is, and as presumptuous as we as fans can sometimes be, yes. I do think that we're all ultimately very respectful mm -hmm. and sort of take cues from Tori and because in this article this is the one instance that she's mentioned this and she's never talked about it this way again no one has followed up on that or delved into that yep. and again I think that's totally appropriate and respectful right so if she wanted to talk about it she would talk about it right I want to go back to what you're saying about me and a gun and something that I'm, I meant to bring up in the cruel episode but never did which is a as a storyteller and B, pronouns. So as a storyteller, you're right. Like it doesn't matter if the words on paper are factually correct. And if that is the actual narrative of what happened to her. And she's always said, this is based on my story. It's, and you know, she's a writer and she's creating a conflict. She's creating a, a scenario. She's creating a rise and a fall in the action and she's creating a climax in a, each song, right? And a moment of truth in each song. She's creating this world. So it doesn't matter if it was actually factual what happened to her. And she has always said it's based on my story. But if you go back to a song like Cruel, where she talks about pronouns, pronouns change. There's a quote that we, I think it's Musique Plus, where she talks about the pronouns change because she wants to keep her friends. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. So I think that's really going on a lot in Cruel. I can be cruel, can be him, can be her. She So she's flaunting all she's got in her old neighborhood while she cocks her mane, can be a dude. You know, like you don't really know what's going on or who she's really talking about. Same with Mina Gunn, same with Black Dove, same with this quote. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm saying except for to say that it really is illustrative of respecting her work as a body of work. I don't know. They all kind of, you know, you see her evolving as a writer. You see her evolving as a person. You see like the growth and the change and just... And we do have this quote. So all of that being said, Tori did offer that story. And so that will be informing our read of the song, I think, particularly when we get to the line by line. I don't see how it couldn't because she specifically mentions yeah. Black Dove. Yeah. I was suggesting we get to the line by line. I David. think we're close. But and that's kind of what I was saying with this song is a little bit of an outlier to me on this album. And this quote sort of captures that for me. I feel like she's almost circling back to subject matter that she'd explored in different ways on Little Earthquakes, Under the Pink, and Boys for Pele. That it seemed like, not that she'd moved on from, but it seems like... I don't know. She's circling back to it and exploring it in a more abstract, distanced way than she mm -hmm. did on those albums. But I'm surprised that you this... mean like a not quite so personal way. Like it's not, yeah. not diary autobiographical. Exactly. Maybe? And maybe that's the only way she could approach this mm -hmm. particular situation or experience is with that little bit of distance mm -hmm. from it for a lot of reasons, maybe a form of protection for herself, but also again, to sort of keep that boundary between herself and the audience. This is a point where she felt comfortable kind of broaching 
discussing that subject? I think, well, I'll say this in a line by line too. I think anything is more interesting in the third person. As a songwriter, you can only say, I have a January world so many times right. before it's like, well, who, then you're not letting anybody in. Mm. As a, If you're crafting a story or a tale, she has a January world is so much more compelling, I think. Mm-hmm. You get a bigger picture. You get to fill in the she. Who is mm-hmm. the she? Where, you know, what is the world? Right. Where if she said, I have a January world, you're just there with Tori. Like you're just like, you can't separate it from Tori. Mm. I'd be curious to look at it from this angle. Do we think in her most, in the instances where the subject matter she's singing about is the most personal, she shifts into a she of course. as opposed to an yeah. I? Oh yeah. All right. I think we mentioned that once before. She's been everybody else's girl. Maybe one day she'll be yeah. her own. And sometimes yeah. it's back and forth within the same song. Mm-hmm. So there's that compartmentalization again. Love it. Yeah. I do it too. (laughs) Should we get into the line by line? Let's line by line. Let's line it up. Like soldiers. She was a January girl. What does it mean to be a January girl? That makes me think of a quote where Tori is kind of talking about being a winter girl. Should we read that? Sure. This is from Piano and Keyboard, May, June, 1993. And she's talking about the process of recording and releasing Under the Pink and that she's hoping to release it at the beginning of the year. And she says, I'm a winter girl. I like coming out when things are desolate and everybody's ready to slit their wrists. (laughs) That's charming. So she should be coming out anytime now. Well, we're a little late, but it's still pretty desolate out there, right? In fact, it's getting more desolate by the second. Yeah, her first three albums came out in the dead of winter in January. And even though it was just those first three and she hasn't had a January release since then, I still have such strong associations with that time of year and new Tory releases well, that I always think of the albums too. If you think about it, in 1991, in January, she moved to London. In 1992, January, she released Little Earthquakes. 1994, January, she released Under the Pink. 95 is when Encomium came out. I think also January 95 is also when, if I'm not mistaken, Higher Learning Higher came learning. out as well. Sounds right. 96, Pele. 97, Great Expectations, although that was like December. And the Rain concert. And the Rain concert, 97, 98. Yeah. Take a little January off. I know, you're right. She's surprisingly active post-holiday. 2000, she got pregnant with Tosh in January. Oh, yeah. I feel like we shouldn't know that, but okay. But we do. She's <laughs> talked about it. She we said, do in math. January, I thought I had food poisoning. And how was I to know it would have been a little girl? It was Tosh. She never on how it was. I guess being a January girl in relation to the quote that you read, winter being a desolate place, she likes to come out when everybody's ready to slit their wrists. So if winter is that kind of desolate place, I mean, it must be very insane. It must make one go mad. And this also makes me think of Icicle, which we've talked about on previous episodes, Mm -hmm. which I also think is a dark story Mm -hmm. with a lot going on beneath the surface. But obviously, you know, you're only going to have an icicle in winter. So that makes me think of isolation being cooped up in a house. And kind of like we said, going into this line by line, this is a dark fairy tale. So I think all of this kind of sets the stage for that, this frozen wasteland and dark goings on in this house yeah and i do think that there is a relation to icicle just in the fact that both songs do take place in winter or in the winter time maybe even in january Mm -hmm. that quote we read earlier where she talks about that opening shot of fargo just that car sort of coming down the icy path the snowy path you have the sense like it's gonna get here eventually but i hope it never does Mm -hmm. very sinister yeah that just ominous impending like something is going to happen Mm -hmm. i feel that i feel that with the mallet piano and i feel that just in the in the opening of the song Mm -hmm. in the tiny kind of scary 
I always think of how big Tori is in that strange little girl video in that house. Mm-hmm. You know, when she like transforms and she's very large. Yeah, there's like an Alice in Wonderland thing happening. Yeah. Although you hate when I bring up Alice in Wonderland. I don't hate when you bring I'm up Alice kidding. in Wonderland. No, <laughs> Tiny kind of scary house, the way she phrases that is so pleasing to my ear. Mm-hmm. It is very evocative of like a Hansel and Gretel home where you're about to be cooked for lunch. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Or like very Tim Burton-y with bare trees and really strong shapes. Mm. All right. Well, let's get this out of the way up front. Do we think Tori is singing about herself exclusively in this song? Are there any other characters here? Or Um, is she the narrator as Tori? Good question. I find this album to be so autobiographical. I find all her albums to be autobiographical until a certain point, and then even after that point, so <laughs> before and after that point. Up to a point and continuing after that point. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, I do think this is autobiographical, just personally I feel that way, because it seems so personal, right? It seems to be so much about fear, like an impending fear, like at least up to this point in the beginning, right? But you're three lines in and you've heard the word insane, you've heard the word tiny, so you feel claustrophobic, and then you also have heard the word scary. Uh-huh. So three lines, three really strong, evocative words. We talked about this off air a little bit, I think. There was a time when I kind of thought this song was about Beanie. And I don't really think that's true anymore. But I kind of, for a while, considered it part of like a Beanie trilogy with Bells for Her and Carbon. Uh Because Tori's mentioned that um, Beanie struggled with bipolar disorder. And I think she had a difficult childhood as well. I don't want to speak out of turn, but I think there may have been mentions of abuse there, possibly. So for me, there was always threads of Beanie here. I don't necessarily feel that way anymore. Mm -hmm. But... Mm-hmm. For a time, that's kind of always how I held the song. I also believe Beauty Queen to be about Beanie. Oh, in a right. Way. Mm-hmm. So a quadrology. Yes, the quadrilogy. Well, it was a, it was a trilogy <laughs> until Scarlet's Walk came out. Uh-huh. It was the 90s Beanie trilogy. Yes, yeah. The same way. I think the thing I said still stands in that case because it feels to be written so personally. Like the fear is, seems so personal. But if you're so close to someone, it makes sense that you can understand their experience. Mm-hmm. You know, that it could be about someone you're very close to and like mm-hmm. really jump into their skin, into their shoes. In the tiny kind of scary What makes the house so scary? Do we know yet? If we want to consider this as autobiographical, one's first instinct would be that Tori's kind of singing about her childhood home, right? Which I don't think she is, because I can't imagine that she she would characterize her family home as a tiny scary house by the woods. But we do go back to the quote we read before the line by line where she mentions being abused by a friend of her family. Now, we don't know where that happened, Mm -hmm. but it's possible that that could have happened elsewhere. Even though I feel like the song is autobiographical, always have, I don't think necessarily it's about her childhood home. I never made that connection, which was singing about her specific home. Maybe she did have an experience in in a tiny, scary house. It's possible, but I think you're right. I'm probably just trying to get too literal. She's storytelling here, so right. it's neither here nor there. Right. If it was a real house or not, she's sort of setting the scene. So. By the woods, by the woods, by the woods, by the woods. The woods are frightening. You know, they paint a very clear picture of a dark, desolate location where you can't scream for help, where you can't run if you need to. And if you do run, it probably will go bad. We've seen the movies. And like you said, very fairy tale. Most of the classic fairy tales begin with a journey into the woods and kind of getting lost Mm -hmm. or coming across something. So this would have been an amazing video. I think if you even got a little bit literal with the video, Mm -hmm. just in setting wise and had Tim Burton direct it or David Fincher, 
Wasn't David Fincher doing videos at the time? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it would have been an amazing video. Yeah, we can still make it. Okay. Should we do a crowdfunding campaign to make the video? Yeah, I want to do that. I'm putting the damage on still, so. Okay, great. <laughs> Black Dove. Black Dove. So this image came to Tori in a dream. We have a couple quotes that we read where she's kind of talking about this image she had of a kind of transparent right. dove made of ice almost. And mm -hmm. she was like looking at her hand through it. Mm -hmm. right? And so. it bleeds water. Mm. A melting ice sculpture at a wedding. Kind of. Again, I, I think keeping with that dark theme, it makes a weird sort of sense that in the woods there would be a black dove. Mm -hmm. That in this dark, scary place, the dove would be black. So effectively setting the scene how she has... If the dove were a white dove, it would signal some weird hope. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, of course, it's like a black dove, which should signal some kind of hope, a dove, but it's a black dove. Mm -hmm. What do you think she means by that? I don't even think that maybe there is any literal thing that she means by it, except for that it did come to her in this dream and she saw a black dove mm -hmm. and that's what it is. Both black dove and black swan make me think of an outsider mm. or something that's different, maybe something mm. that's misunderstood. Yeah. And that's what I think of when I hear that in this mm -hmm. song. Something rare. Jumping off of that, maybe the dove still does symbolize hope. As you say, an outsider that is rare, misunderstood, a feared in a weird way, because it never occurred to me. Like I even just said, I think a white dove would signal hope. What is the black dove signal? But it still signals hope in a way. And with this line, By the way, that line is in the CD booklet, not in the promo booklet that was released before the album that we have, that we've been looking at, which tells me that maybe she didn't have those lines until, you know, maybe she had something else there. What do you think? It's possible. Sometimes she also just eliminates lyrics, lines here and there right. for whatever reason. That She's seemed, like, we'll drive the fans like, nuts. Like, this is the chorus, so it's not like improvise, like the bridge of liquid diamonds or something yeah. like that. So I don't yeah. know. I don't know why that wouldn't be there unless it's just a mistake. Yeah, could be a mistake. <laughs> it's possible. Maybe she kept sending it back for proof like, hey, Jupiter, and right. it kept coming back without that line times. in it. 17 times. 17 times. So let me ask you, is the narrator singing to the black dove or is the narrator herself the black dove? I think she's singing to the black dove that she is. She is the black dove. I agree. <laughs> okay, good. Don't set me up. As convoluted as, Trick that, question. as, convoluted as that sounds, but I agree I, with you. But I waited through it. She is me and I is we. And exactly. We, I'm we singing all to dove. myself. It was her. Love dove glove. For the love of the dove. <laughs> I do think that she is the black dove and she will get out of there. She, whatever. She's in that tiny kind of scary house and the black dove can eventually learn to spread her wings and fly and get out of there. You're not a helicopter, though. Not a cop out either. What does that mean to you? I feel like the more we talk about this, the more this song is going to be linked to Icicle for me, and that makes sense. That mm -hmm. makes me think of I could have, I should have. Like there's a sense of regret here, yeah. but you were doing the best you could. Yes. And just because you didn't fly out of there like yeah, a helicopter doesn't mean that you failed somehow or You're did not something a cop wrong out either. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And of course, there is. It's not alliteration. And it's not onomatopoeia. What <laughs> is it? It's only. <laughs> Helicopter cop out either. It's also, it's not quite wordplay either. Tori's invented something new. Yeah. A new literary device of right. some kind that we can't even define. <laughs> I know. Not metaphor, not simile. <laughs> 
I think it's just that she says cop twice. Yeah. <laughs> Repetition. Yeah, thank you. But it's just so it's so pleasing to the ear, right? You're not a helicopter, you're not a cop out either. Yeah. It pleases me. Me too. You don't need a spaceship. They don't know you've already lived. On the two thoughts on this and i would love to hear your thoughts on this okay so she talks about how the song came through galaxies to find her right mm-hmm. which whenever she's talked about a song coming across galaxies and stopping everything to find her it usually comes out pretty fully formed reindeer king being an example it just kind of dropped into her lap she said yeah same with marianne same with bells for her they just appeared they came to her so i have to believe that this song in some way is like that right do you agree i do okay that being said i think that is to the song that is the black dove that is her you know it's it doesn't make a literal sense again she said like the lyrics weren't necessarily as important as the sonic arrangements and the sound yeah and kind of makes me think of girl from in the shadow she calls where Mm -hmm. you sort of offer that maybe that refers to the song itself that was kind of sitting in a box oh yeah being looked over yeah but it wanted so much to be in the world that it you know crawled out of those shadows and here comes black dove zooming across the galaxy Mm mm-hmm I agree with you. The girl came from across the galaxy to find her, but then also like, they don't know you've already lived on the other side of the galaxy if she is singing to herself too. That's just kind of, you've lived many lives before. And obviously if you're five years old playing the piano the way she does, two years old playing the piano the way she did, something is working from somewhere, right? Like you're pulling from, like, I don't know if it's like a bloodline or a tradition of musicians as she says, but she's already lived on the other side of the galaxy at another time too. And I love that imagery. So those are my two thoughts on that line. I feel like that line, they don't know you've already lived on the other side of the galaxy is something that we can all relate to, especially in our community of, you know, sensitive Tory fans as mm-hmm. kids, I would mm-hmm. imagine a lot of us, I'll speak for myself, we're kind of introverted, but we had a rich kind of internal life that maybe wasn't so apparent to mm-hmm. other people yeah. where you feel like I'm feeling all these feelings and no one understands right. me. That's kind of what that line conjures up for me. This feeling of I've already lived exactly. on the other side of the galaxy. And to that, I'm going to introduce a little Flying Dutchman feeling there. Oh, well, hello, Flying Dutchman. Hello, Flying Dutchman. <laughs> there you are again. Which is that idea, like, they don't get you. They don't know who you really are. Mm, take a trip on a rocket ship. Exactly. Tori loves space travel. <laughs> Always, from 1991, You think 92. she's going to book a seat on that first Virgin flight? Oh, God. Is that still happening? <laughs> I don't know. Probably not. There's probably going to be coronavirus in space. Yeah. <laughs> she so, it being a January girl, thriving in the cold or feeling more comfortable in the cold, feeling more comfortable in the dark, desolation. It makes sense that the world around her that she would create is a January world. Frozen over. Fro- yeah. In ice. So many storms and so many storms, there's a lot of turmoil here. Absolutely. For Not sure. right somehow. Mm-hmm. And she's got to, that's something she's got to work through. Like that talk about the 80s, the 90s, all her, you know, her young life. Mm. Even through this point, like everything is just kind of always storming. There's always something. Mm. Something's always brewing. I think with this line, it sort of sheds light on what she means by she was a January girl from earlier. Is that if she's a January girl living in a January world. If she's a material girl living in a material world, do you know what that means? If she's a January girl living in a January world, and then you find out that the January world has so many storms that aren't right somehow, 
then you kind of know what kind of girl she's been. Something went wrong early to create this January world. To me, there's a sense of isolation here too. And maybe the line, not right somehow, is how this character feels that other people perceive her. Like Mm. there's something not quite right about her. We don't know what's going on with her. And again, I think that's something we've all probably felt, especially as teens or kids, maybe. Yeah, definitely. I never thought of the line like that. I always thought of the line as the storms don't feel right. There's something wrong that she's feeling internally. But I love that interpretation. I love that outsider perspective or that sense of what the outside perspective is because it gives you, again, that sense of someone's peering in looking, you know? When you're constantly battling storm after storm after storm, you're going to get worn down. You're going to break. Yeah. And that really makes me think of how Tori talked about when she was a little, little kid, she had such strong ideas and such a strong belief system. And she was unafraid to talk about it, unafraid to be herself. And over time, it was kind of beaten out of her or trained out of her. So, and she kind of lost her courage or her... Gusto, moxie. Yeah. I remember... her direction or her sense of self or her way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. She lost her way for sure in those woods. Yeah. I remember like when this song was first released and when this album was first released, but this line in particular really seemed to me to mark a turn in Tori's songwriting style. Like that is so straightforward and straight ahead, how a line becomes a mouse. I think that's so not more literal, but more clear clear. than her songwriting had been before, for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. And those are kind of fairy tale-ish creatures too here. We Mm -hmm. have, you know. Lion and a mouse. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. By the woods, by the woods, by the woods, by the woods. The storms, January world, the storms by the woods makes me feel like the woods are the trenches of life and living. That the woods are everywhere around you if you're not careful. Mm -hmm. But you also usually have to make your way through the woods to come out the other side. So into the woods, then out of the woods, and home before dark. (laughs) But I have to get to Texas. In all caps, thanks, Mark. Yeah, what is this? You have a little uh, Thelma and Louise connection here. That I you... do. This is where things get interesting to me. Tori's talked about... <laughs> finally. <laughs> finally. Finally, this boring number. <laughs> Wake me up when we get to Texas, Tori. <laughs> so Tori's talked about Thelma and Louise a couple times, particularly in relation to me and a gun. And on the Little Earthquakes video, she mentions that she went to see Thelma and Louise and it kind of forced her to examine her experience, which she'd been sort of shying away from or hesitant to do. So that's kind of a pivotal moment for her or pivotal film for her. Mm -hmm. In the film, Thelma and Louise are on the run and they're trying to escape law enforcement and Texas is in their way and they're going to have to make it through Texas. Which if you've ever been through Texas takes actually two days. I drove across it in one sitting. Really? I will (laughs) never do that again. The top little chef's hat? (laughs) Nope. Straight across the middle. Dang. Whole thing. One sitting. Collapsed on the other side. Once I left... Las Cruces, New Mexico to go to New York and 13 hours later I'm barely in Dallas and I couldn't take it anymore. I know. And so that I stopped and stayed with my friend Katie and the next day when I left it's several hours past I was like 8 hours I was still in Texas. Seriously, Texas, Jesus. why are you so big? What are you trying to prove? <laughs> so in Thelma and Louise, Thelma and Louise are on the run 
and they have to potentially go through Texas. And Louise, the Susan Sarandon character, is very, very resistant to doing that. And she mm-hmm. says, I'm not going to Texas. And she doesn't say exactly why, I don't think. But it's clear that something happened to her. And it was a violent encounter. Earlier in the film, Thelma is raped. Mm-hmm. And Louise um, kind of comes to her defense and indicates that she had a similar experience. So we think something awful happened to Louise in right, Texas. in Texas. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's what Tori is referencing here. Like, I have to get to Texas. I have to resolve this. I have yeah. to confront my past yeah. and make peace with it somehow. Which I think is what that line means. In general, Joy, when she says, gave that dress to happiness because it matches her eyes when she cries. Mm. Obviously, a blue dress to her, I think, is the sadness or the problem that needs to be resolved, like you said. Mm-hmm. And of course, blue, very on the nose, if mm-hmm. we want to go there, kind of mm-hmm. synonymous with depression or mm-hmm. sadness yeah. or yeah. grief. So I she's like how gonna... you said that, that you know she's got to get to Texas. She's got to go back to the scene of the crime. To resolve what happened to her if you're ever going to move forward. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like you have to face your fear, which is maybe the entire reason she's even in that tiny, scary house to begin with, why it's set here. But I love that you brought up General Joy, too, because obviously Tori has a tendency to personify emotions. And it's always, you know, I spent time with sadness. We had a giggle. She wears mm-hmm. a blue dress. So I do mm-hmm. think that's that's what's happening here. Yeah. She's sort of, yeah, having a conversation with whatever emotion this is. Blind. It's the chorus again, and then she has to get to Texas again, which is the bridge. It's really interesting how she structures the song, by the way. And then she kind of has this, like, what we assumed was probably an improv at the end. And we believe it to be because Cowboy the Snakes, they are my kin, are my kin. What do you think about that? Those aren't actually in the booklet, so we have no way of confirming that, except for that's kind of what we hear all the time, and it's pretty clear. <laughs> so <laughs> I love that line, too. The snakes, they are my yeah, kin. Yeah, totally. It really kind of illustrates who this girl is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, what do you think about it? It makes me think of aligning yourself with the outsiders, right? Most people are afraid of snakes. Snakes mm-hmm. usually have a negative connotation. Yeah. So I like, like, no, no, no. Like, I get the snakes, like, yeah. repels. Yeah. I'm on their side. <laughs> right. And of course, it sounds, I never thought of it that way. sounds so goofy, but, you know, I can't help but see it through the filter or the lens of my own experience as, like, a teen gay uh-huh. with a rough coming out process. I was like, yeah, you don't even get it. <laughs> like, I don't know. To me, that was, like, the gay experience. Like, the we're the snakes of society. And <laughs> that's not how I took the line at all, interestingly enough. Well, I'm not I saying that's foolish. actually what she means, obviously. No, but, but I mean, probably that sounds right. I always just thought the snakes, they are my kin, that I am a snake. Uh, and I, and I, I never went further enough. I think we started at the same place, but you went a little further than my sort of delving into that line. I always thought that it was a negative vision of self, that she was calling herself a snake. I like your interpretation of it better because I took my own feeling about snakes and, and colored the line with it and didn't see that she probably is feeling like an outsider and understands the outsiders and understands the things that people find gross, Mm -hmm. understands the things that people don't want to touch, understands the things that people are afraid of. I like that a lot more. I think that fits better into the song. I'm willing 
to say with 100% certainty that you are right. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to be 100% right. Thank you. Who's the cowboy? She loves a cowboy. Who does They show up once in a while. Honey, the Cornflake Corn Girl, Girl video. video. Yeah. Who's the cowboy in this song? I don't know exactly who he is, but he just makes sense to me as a character kind of passing through this world in I Texas. Know who it like is. we gotta have a cowboy. Oh yeah. I was gonna say it's Brad Pitt. In Thelma and Louise? Yeah. yeah. That's just singing too. <laughs> yeah. It's possible. Cowboy. And if that's li- if this line is improvised, like you kind of suspect she was maybe just picturing the movie and she was yeah. like, Yeah, Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah, but I like, you know, Texas is filled with cowboys. So if she's in Texas, maybe she makes it to Texas. Yeah. If she's seeing a cowboy, she's probably gotten to Texas by the time the second verse rolls around mm-hmm. or by the time that bridge rolls around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, They're having a little chat at Scarlet's Roadside Cafe. Mm, Scarlet's Bar. Mm. Next thing in the lyric book is she had a January girl. She has a January girl. To me, that is the baby. The baby was another storm not right somehow. The mm. baby was something that didn't go right again. Of course, the January girl had a January girl, and it was a something that was obviously something didn't go right, and you know the baby's never born. Mm. So I think that that's what she's referring to when she says she had a January girl. That had never occurred to me, frankly, but I love that, and I think it's kind of satisfying that there's some symmetry here, and that that narrative that's so present on the album does kind of weave into this song here yeah. at the end. I think that's really nice. She never let because you know the really depressing and sad thing is that she's mentioned many times how you can't really talk about it nobody really talks about having a miscarriage and nobody really allows space for grief in that time and it's really kind of something it's like you had the plague i think is that quote we read earlier right like nobody i think we read it in spark nobody really talks about it yeah and somebody was over at my house not too long ago and they were looking through their Instagram and their friend had posted pictures of themselves pregnant. And my friend said, oh my God, so-and-so is pregnant. I don't know this person, you know? It was just her friend from back home. And she's like, oh my God, so-and-so is pregnant. And she's like, oh my God, no, she's not. And she read the post, which was, it was on Friday the 13th. And she said, today would have been, I was so excited to announce that I was 13 weeks pregnant on the actual day of Friday the 13th. Unfortunately, I no longer am. And it was really, like, it was a really sad, beautifully written, but very sad post. And I just thought, of course I thought about this album. And I, because we're working on this album anyway, but I would have thought about this album. To be open about it is probably very difficult because people aren't that open about it so much. So it's probably very difficult to be open about it. And when she says she never let on how insane it was, like, she's probably going through a whole hell of a lot more than she's letting on. And she can barely make it to the kitchen. She can barely go outside. I admire Tori so much for being willing to have that conversation and being so honest, as she always is. She always is open with her experience and that takes kind of the air out of things if Mm -hmm. you will and again the more we talk about things the less taboo it is the less shameful it is the more open we are about it and it just kind of communicating openly always makes everything better Mm -hmm. but i certainly identify with the way she's speaking about that particular experience and the quote you're referencing and i've you know miscarriages are very common but it is a strange i'll say that people just aren't comfortable talking about it which Mm -hmm. is fine i understand why but it's strange when it's all very like hush hush and you don't know what to say to the person and they don't know what to say to you i don't know it's very strange but and it's not really like that with other forms of grief we accept that people's parents die other people in your life have died but when it comes to miscarriage it's very hush hush it's very not talked about openly right and i believe tori even says this too there's no ritual Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. no equivalent of a funeral yeah there's no not to get too morbid but there's no body so you don't like know how to grieve this loss and it's a real loss but there's no kind of like framework for it 
Yeah. Yeah. Black Dove. So then we end as quickly as we began. Black Dove. Black Dove. Do you think she flies away in the end? I think she flies through Texas, liberated. Yeah? I do. Well, no, I agree with that. It's funny because even though she is her and I am we and she is singing about me <laughs> and her, I've never pictured the black dove flying. I picture the black dove in a car yeah. trying to get to Texas. <laughs> that dove's got a license. Yeah. It's like Toons is the driving cat. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess you would fly to Texas. Interesting. But hopefully not too close to the sun because the dove is also apparently made of ice. So mm. maybe the, the dove n- melts away at the end. Oh, you think she does? Maybe. Maybe the black dove is all of this unresolved material. Oh, and at the interesting. End... And she bleeds water, tears. Mm. Mm. That could be really, that would be beautiful. Oh, that's how our video would look. That would be a good video. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, yeah, she transmutes all this pain and then the dove just melts away and she lets it go. I like that. Even though it's nowhere here in these lyrics, let's just say that it's yeah, true. I mean, it's a, I mean, it might be the way she ends with, this might be the first time she ever ends a song with just repeating the title. I think you're right. And it's so long and drawn out. Black uh, She loves that vocal fry. That raspberry throat? Yeah. That's how I would sing it. All right, should we listen to Yanta? Yanta. I miss Yanta because there was no Yanta for cruel. What did you want from the man? I'm not saying there should have been. I'm just saying I missed it. Like the deserts missed the rain. I love that he seemed to find the exact right sample. That sounds really great. Can see that car driving towards the camera. She was a January girl. I love how minory this is, you know what I mean? song is so atmospheric on the album there's a lot of reverb and it sounds you can hear the open space of it almost and i think yanta even managed to capture that here goes into major, F major. So when you said it's bells for her meets cornflake girl, I think that's the best way to describe it. It goes, has this like weirdly dark minory feel, sad, very sad feel to kind of like rock song.
how complex the playing is here and you don't get that on the album at all. It's really buried. It's almost like a dialogue between the piano and the mallet piano or the synthesizer, which then it's like a dialogue within this woman about her sadness and, and how to break free from it. transmission from the heavens or from the other side of the galaxy and it just comes to you and that's what it is. Imagine being talented. <laughs> I can't even put myself in that place. I don't dare dream. might be the highest note in the whole song and it ends there right like the dove is flying away or melting mm -hmm. as we said what'd you think david i love that i think kind of like i was saying while we were listening it's a really rich kind of gorgeous composition and arrangement because it's such a band heavy song you really don't get all the depth of that on the album how does again how does he pull that out <laughs> given what we have i don't know it's amazing but the interesting question for me would be that after having transcribed and searched for tori's notes through the bass through the guitar through the drums you know after having done that for every song or for hundreds of songs is she surprising anymore or does he know her in some kind of weird musical way that no one else does that's what i want to ask yanta the next time we interview her. yeah that's a good question was that note surprising to you or is it obvious to you what choice she's going to make there because here to me listening to that instrumental for the first time the chord progression is really really interesting i knew it was but it's so clear mm -hmm. like her choice of chords it could be jarring in anybody else doing it you know, especially when we, she's, I believe, switching from minor to major and changing the tone completely of the song musically. Mm. But it doesn't, for me, change the tone of the song, the feel of the song. It almost sounded like, you know, the storms that are mentioned in the song itself. Like mm -hmm. her playing is mm -hmm. kind of roiling underneath the vocal and she's not kind of following the vocal melody at all. There's yeah. like a lot happening under yeah. the surface. Which in the songs that come to her through divine transmissions, we'll say from other sides of the galaxy, this one, 
Marianne, bells for her, it's not following the vocal line at all. That's true. She does make space for the vocals. She is kind of noodling a lot in all three of those songs. To me, that makes it all the more impressive. It's hard enough to play and sing, period. Yeah. But when you're doing it on the fly and playing something totally different than what you're singing, I just don't even understand. Finding space for your own vocals in the playing. Like Mm. you're playing the melody of the music, but still finding a place for your vocal melody to kind of dip in and out with that playing that's really impressive yeah, tori's good god you can support yanta by going to his page at patreon.com slash yanta you can also listen to yanta on spotify and please do that he's amazing incredible what's your favorite lyrical moment of the song i think it's gotta be because cowboy the snakes they are my kin. really yeah. really mm-hmm. why is that your favorite part i don't know there's just something really evocative about it and like i said during the line-by-line kind of aligning yourself with the outsiders or those who are misunderstood, there's something really satisfying about that to me. And everything a snake symbolizes, a lot of people are afraid of them, but they're also considered, you know, kind of keepers of wisdom. That makes sense. It just kind of checks a lot of boxes for me. And you? For me, it's you're not a helicopter, you're not a cop-out either. Mm-hmm. Just that wordplay yeah, or that scheme. The repetition we've decided. To. Repetition. Sorry, yes. yes. Um, yeah, that to me is really pleasing to hear. It, it kind of has a satisfying resolve in those two lines. You're not a helicopter, you're not a cop out either i don't know there's something very satisfying to me and as far as lyric writing even though it's steeped in metaphor it's very clear what she's singing which i love being able to sometimes a metaphor can be too heavy that you don't understand like what is going on like what are you really trying to say but here it's like i get it and it's a beautiful what is your favorite moment in terms of vocal performance for me thank you for asking david <laughs> you asked me first um my favorite vocal performance in the whole song is Cowboy, the snakes, they are my kin. I have a hard time separating the album. I always think of the live version where she really, are my kin. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And if not that, then how a lion becomes a mouse live when she says, how a lion becomes a mouse. What about you? Um, I'm going to choose a couple here. During the bridge, I got to give a, a little acknowledgement to the ha, ha, ha. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about that. Can I talk about that for a minute? Yes, we, you can. It's not written in the lyric book, so yeah. we skipped right over it. Can you imagine it. if it ha, I, ha. <laughs> To me, that is so powerful as a performer because it's her leading the band. That's her playing and being a band leader right there because I think it has a lot to do with timing. Right. Mm. You know, it's, I mean, maybe not, maybe she's just playing and like letting out that vocal moment, but that moment needs something. It's like cresting and it needs it, Like, I can't imagine that without, when she does it without the ha, it's very unsatisfying. You, that moment needs something. But yeah. to me, it's also about timing, especially at the beginning when they're writing the song and playing it for the first time. It's like, here's where we are. Ha! I love that they kept that in. They could yeah. have cut it out because it seems so authentic and in the moment, but it does seem like something she would do live. And, and a lot do, of yeah. moments on this album have a very live in the moment feeling that I think yes. they really managed to capture. So yes. I love that. Yes. A couple of other musical just kind of things that I like in the song that I want to bring up. How you just mentioned about the ha in the bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that compared to the little ha at the beginning? 
It's like, she's meek, she's unsure, hi. And then at the end, she's like, hi, I'm here. <laughs> what a transformation. What I a know. journey. What a journey in a song. Yeah, and you know, as much as she talked about the intimacy of the recording of Pele and wanting it to sound like she's, you know, on the bench kind of singing into your ear, I feel like this song, the atmosphere of this song, especially the beginning, kind of outdoes that. You can yeah. hear every, it's very close. You can mm-hmm. hear every noise she's making with her mm-hmm. mouth. And right before she starts to sing, you can hear like she's... <laughs> and then you hear her breathing. <laughs> yeah. You really can. Yeah, and I love it. That's like a style that they were really into at this particular recording session where mm. you would just, it felt live, like yeah. you said. I think today those would be cleaned up. I was going to say. Would you rather have it be reconditioned and included on a piano or just not included at all? Can I provide creative input? To Tori? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Mine, as long as we're playing I mean, this she, game. If she lets you. Anything goes. You're going to have to reach out. She won't let me, trust me. Um, I was in curious to see what she has to do. And you know, when people Lucas us, their answer is always, well, it doesn't wipe the original off the face of the planet so like why not why not you're right you're right you're right david (laughs) something we didn't do on the last episode that we did on the first episode what actress what modern day working actress would you have play black dove in from the choir girl hotel the hot new movie from warner brothers let me think someone capable of playing great vulnerability but also great strength great and i'm not really an actress so (laughs) i won't cast myself emma watson Okay. Um, I think Mock my answer. I'm mocking Emma Watson. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> yes, yeah, someone who can play great vulnerability and great strength. I see someone like a Sheila Vond from A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Oh, yes. You remember her? Mm-hmm. God, what a great movie. So like a Sheila Vond or like a Feruza Balk. I like Feruza Balk. In it's every just role. just casters everything. <laughs> In yeah, every she role. Can be like, it'll be like an Eddie Murphy movie. It'll just be Feruza Balk talking to herself at the Choir Girl Hotel. Or like a Tyler Perry movie. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I also just love the way she says Texas. She kind of does like her Cartman thing a little bit too. She Texas. I never, I can't <laughs> believe you've come up with Cartman as the symbol of that thing when she does that with her vocal. Because I can't, I heard it when you mentioned it in Cruel. To me, it's like, I never would have gotten there without you saying that. I never would have made the association unless you had said that. And I still, I mean, I still don't. It's not like. I'm not saying to be insulting, but sometimes that's you. what it sounds like. She dare you. it, man. You can't it. Um, what's your favorite musical moment? Uh, I do love the way the guitar kind of swells underneath the chorus. It reminds me of Father Lucifer a little bit, but also just the bridge. Yeah, the so piano powerful, break. like it really breaks out. It's really powerful, complex playing. And we got the, huh, I don't know. I love yeah. that moment. No, I love the bridge. I love the piano, especially in the bridge with the, how it's kind of stunted a little bit. It's like that kind of staccato. Mm-hmm. But it's still so powerful. Oh, yeah. I love it. It's amazing. Do you want to listen to a cover, David? Yeah, I do. Okay. This is a cover we found on YouTube. This is by a group called Blue Vine. um, And it's a very unique instrumental take on Black Dove. Roll it, Ollie. Thank you. 
Our first interview is with Amber E. She is a friend and a supporter and a Black Dove fan. Hi, Amber. Hey, how are you? Where are you living now in this time of crisis, this time of quarantine? (laughs) I'm quarantined in my house in St. Petersburg, Florida. Oh, how is it? You know, it's going all right. It's me and my daughter are on spring break. I work for the school, so... And then now my boyfriend is working from home, so we're all home together. Oh, fun. No, you're not getting any work done, are you? Um, luckily, I don't have to work, okay. so it's okay. okay. He does, though. <laughs> How did you discover Tori Amos and her music? When did you fall in love? So um, I first really became aware of her. I was like in eighth grade, and I was in Catholic school. And my sister, uh, my older sister, her boyfriend, who is like one of those people who always knew about cool music, gave me a copy of Boys for Pele that had just come out. And he's like, oh, I think you'll like this. And um, yeah, and so I don't know if you know much about like Catholicism, but in eighth grade, when you go to Catholic school, you're supposed to be confirmed and decide that you're going to be Catholic. And I was the only kid in my Catholic school who chose not to do it in my class that year. So it just kind of coincided, and he gave me Boys for Paley, and I remember putting it on and being like, wow, this is, it just like struck me at that time in my life perfectly, and I sat there and like read the whole lyrics as I had listened to the CD, and then after that, it was over. I had to buy like every album, every <laughs> single. <laughs> wow. Would you say that you chose not to be confirmed because you heard Pele, or Pele just made you realize you made the right choice? I think, yeah, I can't remember the exact time frame, but I think it was, I was going to not do it anyways. And then hearing her music, I was like, yeah, this just confirms that it was, you know, at the risk of sounding dramatic. It was just kind of like one of those moments where you're like, I have found exactly what I'm supposed to find. <laughs> I love you, Father Lucifer. <laughs> Talk about your love for Black Dove, your love of the dove. So my love of Black Dove. So... Since I didn't find Tori until after Boys for Pele came out, then when Choir Girl came out, it was like my first experience of having a new album. So at this point, I was in high school and I had a good friend, Lisa, who was also a Tori Amos fan. And we would like pass a notebook back and forth in class. And um, one of the things that we would do is like we were anticipating the new album. So when it came out, we just like dissected the lyrics and went through everything about the new album. And it's kind of this song is really for me. It's like my connection to my friend Lisa. Um, it was a song we kind of both connected to and we shared that. So I don't know. I think it's even, um, it's like one of those instances too where even without knowing what the lyrics mean, it, you almost like on an emotional level kind of know them, even if maybe the lyrics themselves are vague. And it's not really for me to speak to, but like now that I know more about what this song means, it really. Like, I can see how, like, for my friend Lisa, especially, it it's not like my story to tell, but, you know, I can see why for her the song really connected. And, yeah, so it's just one of those things where, like, Tori works in mysterious ways. There's a connection there before you even know that there's a connection there. And, um, ironically, my friend Lisa now lives in Texas, so whenever I get to visit her, I can say I have to get to Texas. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. Isn't it interesting how songs can sort of take on 
um, ownership by certain people in your life. Like, oh, that's Lisa's song yeah. for you. I have a friend named Lisa who this is her song as well. So oh, just, that's funny. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how like these songs become not property or owned by, but but symbolic of and stand-ins for the people in our lives. Yeah, definitely. Like, I'll never hear that song and not think of my friend Lisa and just kind of that time in high school we had together. Yeah. I think Tori's music is so great that way. Now that this album has been released 20 years ago, 22 years ago, <laughs> um, what has your relationship with the song changed? Or do you have any further insight as, you know, as we've all gotten older? Well, I think, you know, back in the day, like, um, I was not very tech savvy. I didn't have email until like I was out of high school. So, um, yeah, now I've, I've been able to search more and like see more quotes. So, um, I have more understanding like what this song means to Tori, but I think as far as like my emotional connection, it, it really is kind of the same. It, um, it has definitely a nostalgic place in my heart. And overall, I think it's just, it's a gorgeous song. I think especially the part two where, she says, um, from the other side of the galaxy and the band comes in. I think it's just like being that that was the first album with the band. I think it's just like a great, I don't know. She used the band like perfect in that song, I think. Yeah, it starts very unassumingly. And then the band just kind of comes mm-hmm. in and sort of takes over. And it just is, it's so emotionally overwhelming, but also like mm-hmm. just such a, a big sound. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And I think at that time too, we hadn't heard anything like that from Tori. So it was just like so yeah. riveting. It was so exciting. Yeah, I can remember, um, like, one of my first plays of the album, it kind of just standing out, like, wow, it just felt powerful, and it was kind of, in a way, it was, like, dreamy, but also, like, kind of haunting at the same time. Mm-hmm. I just remember instantly, like, I loved that song instantly. Yes, yeah, such a good song. Um, what's your favorite lyrical moment in the song? What's your favorite one line or two lines? I think my favorite line is when she says, snakes, they are my kin. Mm-hmm. Um I like that one. And then I also just really love the, you know, from the other side of the galaxy part. You know things that you shouldn't know, but, you know, on an emotional level, sometimes you just understand things. Friends out there, you can find Amber online on Instagram at Birdie Amber, B-I-R-D-Y-A-M-B-E-R. What's the story behind the username? Um, I just like birds. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> what are some other songs of Tori's that you love so we can have you back on our show? Uh, upside down and I'm putting the damage on like always been my favorite and I really love spring haze I liked rattlesnakes a lot upside down is probably the next one we're going to do we're going to redo the little earthquakes b-side so we'll have you back on that show all right I look forward to it sounds great thank you so much for talking to us today and please take care of yourself okay yeah we're we're sticking it out here yeah all right bye we'll talk again all right thanks a lot I appreciate it bye 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 Here's a cover of Black Dove by Star St. Germain. You can find this on her website, thisisstar.com, and we'll link to it on our show notes.
Hi, Michael. How are you? Alone with one other person uh, for the next X number of weeks. Want to talk some Black Dove to take your mind off things? Yeah. What do you love most about Black Dove? I love most the I Have to Get to Texas breakdown. The piano jam out is the thing to love the most. What does it mean to be a January girl? January, I think, is about youth and innocence and beginnings. Maybe young is a better word than youth, per se, but yeah. The song is a duality of minor and major chords. Describe this song in a different duality. Displacement and familiarity. Who in your life reminds you most of a black dove and why? I'm going to say my friend Julia, in that there's only one. What's the perfect place to listen to Black Dove at full volume? I don't want to trap all of my choir girl listening spots in the dark at night, but... (laughs) When the hotel fits. (laughs) I think that the lights have been turned down for much of choir girls, though not all. So I'm going to say Cabin in the Woods. Out of 16 shades of blue, what shade of blue is this blue dress? So, contrary to the nighttime, I see the blue dress as a kind of crisp baby blue, as in in its symbol of an innocent lust. Who would be haunting your version of a tiny, kind of scary house? Snakes. they're, They're certainly not my kin. Did you hear about the Texan I went out with last night? No, tell me. He wasn't scary, but he was kind of tiny. Yeah. And I couldn't get his cock out either. (laughs) I've heard that how men from Texas can be. If you could pilot a rocket ship, where would you go first? Oh, I would go to Europa. Europa has our best chance of finding microbial friends in our solar system, and I would like to say hello. Are you a helicopter or a cop-out either, and why? I read these lines as, as, uh, as the same thing. as like neither form of escape. I am a little bit more of a cop-out in that I, I'm not going to hover around. I'm just going to Irish goodbye dip right out of there. And finally, what's your favorite kind of woods? My favorite kind of woods is like a snowy mountainside woods one can ski through in like a really beautiful glade trail. Do you ski? I ski. I ski better than anyone you know, Eve. Let the world hear that. (laughs) (laughs) It's my one athletic talent. Don't you dare take that away from me. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Michael, tell everybody (laughs) where they can follow you online should they desire skiing (laughs) lessons. You can find me following uh, Drive All Night. DP, whatever my Instagram handle is. I've got a little face mask on in my picture. Um, very prescient at the time, right. I'd say. Right. He's very topical. Thanks, Michael. We'll talk again at Raspberry Swirl. Oh, can't wait. Bye. On the line, we have Mr. Eric Reed. He is a teacher in Chicago. Hi, Eric. Hey, Eve. How's it going? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Eric Reed is our supporter for a long time, and you can find him on Instagram and Twitter at MrHistory82. Tell us how you discovered Tori Amos's music. So I was a freshman in high school, and I had heard the name Tori a few times here or there, but I had never actually heard her music. And so I knew some girls that wore her t-shirt from the Under the Pink tour, and it just was two shifts passing in the night. I just never saw her on 120 Minutes. I never heard her on the radio. And then I went to a friend's dance show a week before my 15th birthday, and these girls started doing a dance to Little Earthquakes. And this was this initial, like, oh, my gosh, this song is everything I've ever wanted. 
And up to that point, I was like a Janet Jackson kind of guy. And so this was like 180 from what I used to listen to. And a week later on my 15th birthday, I bought Little Earthquakes. Isn't it funny how a lot of us were like Janet Jackson, Paula Abdul kind of guys were just craving some depth, some emotional depth? (laughs) I know. Every time you bring it up, I think about that and how I relate to it. Okay. How did you discover Black Dove? How is that a song that you came to love? Okay, so I get Little Earthquakes. It's 1997. I don't know anything about the Boys for Paley tour. I totally missed the boat. And the first album that I was around for was Choir Girl. I remember hearing Spark on the radio at like two in the morning, and I couldn't wait for this album to come out. So the first time I actually listened to Black Dove was the week that the album dropped. And initially I was like, what is this? Uh, I was not the greatest fan of this song at first. I liked it. But I wasn't what you would call a super fan at that point. I was really into like Jackie Strait, the Northern Lad, and the songs that were a little bit more piano driven. And then I got to see her for my first time in 98 uh, in Chicago. And the plug tour, she performed Black Dove. And I was just enthralled. I believe she was playing the the piano and the keyboard at the same time. I remember her grabbing herself with the snakes there at my king line. Yes. And, uh, it just was guttural, and I felt it. And I really started to resonate with the song, the lyrics. It's very atmospheric to me. And I believe she talked about it being like from a nightmare and how she suffers from nightmares. And I feel like the song does such a really good job of blending that world, the dream world of like things that are real versus things that aren't real. And it all blends together, but at the same time, it makes sense to you, the dreamer. I also think of it as like signs of trauma and dealing with trauma and how some of the lyrics and the music really plays into that. And that's kind of the piece that really resonated with me in my own personal history and my own trauma. And every time it shows up at a show, I'm screaming for it. Every time that it comes on in shuffle, it is like my entryway to uh, Choir Girl. If I'm listening to any other song from Tori and I put on Black Dove, I have to keep listening to Choir Girl songs after that. Yes. So you saw a plug show in 98. How many shows have you seen since then? I believe I've seen 28 shows. Have they all been in Chicago or have you traveled? Oh, I've seen her in Chicago, Indiana, Wisconsin. I lived in Phoenix for several years, so I've seen her there in L.A., San Diego. I bet we've been to a lot of the same shows. Uh, we have. I actually saw you outside of the Chicago Theater in this last tour, and my friend made me leave, so I couldn't say hi. <laughs> I really wanted to. Well, damn it. I know. Have you ever had a chance to meet her? So I met her kind of twice. And so the first time was uh, the second show I went to in 98 in Evanston. I got to go to the meet and greet. And I didn't get to talk to her, but I got to reach my hand out far enough for her to sign my little Earthquake CD. And that was enough for me for that tour. And then in uh, Scarlet's Walk, I wore a Santa hat to go to a meet and greet in Milwaukee because it was December 1st. And I got to talk to her and I was all like, oh, my God, I don't know what to say. (laughs) It was so bad. It's so embarrassing. And I asked her to play uh, Yes, Anastasia. And she just kind of like smiled and called me Santa's little helper and did not play Yes, Anastasia. (laughs) She did play River that night, though, and I was convinced it was because I wore that Santa hat and then she called me Santa's little helper. Uh And I'm still going to live with that and say that it was for me. 
I wrote her a letter in the Native Invader tour that I gave uh, to Mark in Madison. And I also asked again for Yes Anastasia. And the next night in Chicago, she played it. Oh, my God. That's good, because you got to give her at least 24 hours notice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what does Black Dove mean to you now, 22 years later? Well, so I realized that not everyone listens to music the same way. For me, uh, music is an access point to go different places, uh, to like go on an actual sonic journey. And so if I'm ever in a tumultuous time in my life, then I need to go beside myself, to go outside of my body. Uh, Black Dove is that song to go to. I feel like I still really relate to it 22 years later. I feel like no matter what the situation, I can hone in to what she's trying to do. And I can also go to the other side of the galaxy with that song. And mm. It gives me that like comfort feeling of like a blanket over you. And it also, at the same time, slingshots me out into like the stratosphere. It's the weirdest duality in the song, but that's what I love about it is the duality. You know, you have this character who's in this tiny kind of scary house. Everything is desolate. It's January. It's barren. And yet in the next beat, you're off in an entirely different world yeah. and having yeah. to get to Texas. And like, I don't know if you've ever tried to get somewhere and you're just... I just have to make it to this place. Yeah. Either physically, emotionally, spiritually. I feel like Black Dove gets that feeling. She just nailed it. It's like, everything will be okay if I can make it to the other side. And I still feel that. <laughs> I love that you mentioned the duality of the song because we talked a little bit about it in the line by line, but we didn't really go into it that one moment you are in a tiny, scary house and the next minute you're on the other side of the galaxy. So there's this intense coin flip that lives in the song, you know? It never feels out of place either. Well, absolutely. I think there's this trauma and not being able to leave with also this escapism of getting out, even if it is in your own mind. I love that at the beginning of this song, she has some very quiet, very meek, hey, and then later yeah. in the bridge where she's just like, hey, and it's like yeah. the same sound, but polar opposite sides. Of the exactly. Picture. We mentioned that. It's such, yeah, great observation. I love it. <laughs> What's your favorite lyrical moment? There's so many, and I really, I have to take notes so I can actually give you one. Uh, my favorite lyrical moment I decided was, they don't know you already lived on the other side of the galaxy. How do you take that to mean? People are always going to assume things about you. They will never know your inner being. And you can't be defined by what anybody else says or does. You have to define yourself. Amazing words to end on. You can find Eric Reed, Mr. History 82. He's on Instagram. He's on Twitter. You played our Wills and Wants game, didn't you? I did. I am also the only person that was playing uh, the poetry game with Little Earthquakes. Oh, that's right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for, for sticking with us through our great games and our failed games. I appreciate everything you guys do. I love the podcast a lot. It definitely makes me feel like part of something. And you guys are doing fantastic stuff. I really, really appreciate everything you guys put into it. Well, thank you so much for the words and for being a supporter and now a friend. All right, bye. Bye. Here's another cover of Black Dove by John C. Frazier on guitar. You can find this on YouTube and we'll link to it in our show notes.
Well, we've made it to the live section, David. Yeah, we have. My favorite part of the whole show. We flew across Texas all the way to the live section. We did. It was a long flight. We're going to start with the promo appearances, as we do, from TV and radio. Radio. Chicago, Illinois, on April 30th, 1998, prior to the album coming out. This was broadcast on the Album Network Radio Special. You ready for this? I'm ready. Here we go. I think this might have been the first known live promo performance of the song, like on TV or radio. Yeah, it must have been. On TV and radio, we hear from Black Dove again on the K-Rock Breakfast with Tori special, May 7th, I can think of is the fact that I wasn't there because I had to go take my final. Did you pass it? <laughs> yeah, I passed it. Did it get you anywhere in life? No, not a Never miss no. another Tory show. If I had it to do all over again, <laughs> I would ditch that final. In fact, I wouldn't go to college at all. <laughs> Here's Tory performing Black Dove, very special performance of Jules Holland, May 22nd, 1998. On the when she performs non-single tracks. Yeah. She used to do that a lot more than she does now. She doesn't do it at all now. Yeah, she kind of does. Like what? Wild way. Oh, yeah. I guess you're right. Reindeer <laughs> you're King. Right. It's rare. I mean, there was a period of time probably between, I would say, 2002 through 2014 that she wouldn't play non-single tracks. Like anything she would play on TV was a sort of fairy tale, taxi ride, big wheel, bouncing off clouds. Welcome to England. Welcome to England, sweet the sting. Yep, you're right. Um, but once we hit Unrepentant Geraldine, she didn't really do Troubles Lament. She did, like you said, Wild Way. And then once we got to Native Invader, I remember that one beautiful television performance where she starred with Reindeer King. Mm. God. That's so what an Unrepentant Geraldine would do. Like, I'm not playing the single. I'm going to play whatever I want, and I regret nothing. I'm Unrepentant again. Hit it. <laughs> now we're going to get into the live tour section proper this is where it gets good yes we're just gonna give it to you straight at the top of the live section right david that'll never happen she, again <laughs> she's performed it a total of 173 times calm down well, not all at once okay <laughs> not back to back just <laughs> <laughs> you never you know imagine. ow ow ow, 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 ow. 
She played the song in 1998 a total of 66 times, David. Mm-hmm. I would have guessed a lot more. Well, that's not true, but I would have thought going into that tour that she would have played it a lot more. But I do remember a period of time where it became kind of scarce. Yeah. So she opened with the song every show on the club tour and on the European tour. And then she started hitting the festival circuit like in the end of June, where she, I think, realized that Precious Things was a stronger opener for a Mm -hmm. daytime show like that. Mm -hmm. And then when she got to the States, she kept opening with Precious Things. She opened with Precious Things for two shows, opened with Black Dove again for the last time in Ames, Iowa. And let's play... Let's let's go through the 98 tour. So let this is the first time she played Black Dove, the first song of the first show, April 18th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. What did you think of that, David? That is a loud, chatty audience. <laughs> yeah. Good Lord. I know. Shut up. Tori's back. <laughs> Can't teach people manners. So the sort of hand dance on this song generally was that she would perform the first verse on the Kurtzweil, then get to the chorus on the piano, then do the second verse on piano and Kurtzweil, which for the first time revealed her two-handed playing technique. Yes, when she unveiled that trick and it blew our hair back. Yeah. What? (laughs) Go wild. (laughs) Then the chorus again on the piano, then the bridge on the piano, and then most often she would go for that third verse back to both the Kurtzweil and the piano. But there was one time that we found in Philadelphia, 1998, this is on April 26, 1998, so still on the club tour, where she ended with the last verse only on the Kurtzweil, and it has a really interesting moment at the end of the bridge, which I love, and we talked about it when we were doing our live tour all year commentary mm-hmm. for the Philly She does like a little show. scat vocal yes. breakdown, right? She's like, yeah, da, 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 da. Oliver, <laughs> get that Tory scat on. <laughs> think of all the songs to kind of mix it up mm-hmm. she's like i don't know whatever way the wind is blowing today How maybe it's keyboard feel. maybe it's piano maybe yeah. it's both i think it was you know still playing with the band was so new this she'd been playing with a band live for a week two weeks maybe and it was just like anything go and let's try anything whatever feel yeah. in the moment yeah and typically when she nails down an arrangement she sticks with it not that Generally. there aren't variations and improvisations within it of course but she usually picks you know what keyboard. at least the hand dance because yeah. she said before that the rehearsals are about getting down the hand dance like where I'm what, sorry has she used the term hand dance have yeah, you I used think, the term hand dance? i never have but i remember a time where i think where she said it's about figuring out the hand dance like where what hand plays what when my hand dances are totally different. Okay. This is June 11th, 1998 in Hamburg, Germany. And this was released on the radio at that time. And it was also released as a bootleg called Tora Tora Tori, which was my very first bootleg mm. from the 98 shows. 
and it was so good. Here it is. She's almost, at this point in the tour, eschewing. She's almost going to completely eschew Black Dove as the opening song. She's about to discover precious things as an opener. She was shunning and eschewing. <laughs> All at the same time. She's talented. One hand shuns, one hand eschews. Totally. One on each shun, one on each shoe. <laughs> Let's also point out that that last verse was entirely on piano. That's my preference. That's personally. your preference? Yeah. When it's I like when, when she finishes just... off on the piano. Really? Why? It's really clean. It's like a little more powerful. Clean. The, the, the keyboard's I muted. I like my Tory when she's clean. I like my Tory clean. That's why I like under the pink Tory. Oh, okay. That artwork just is pristine and airbrushed. beautiful. <laughs> Crisp white cotton dress. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> what do you think is going through her mind when she goes from a song being a tour staple, the opener, to she maybe played it like one in ten, one out of ten shows. She got over it. I don't know. Something happened. Her relationship with Black Dove changed. That's a good question. I think it goes back to the conversation that we sometimes have, which is that her music is her tool for healing even while she's playing live and maybe she does get over something and maybe it doesn't Mm. need to be addressed so much in her life and those tours where the song whatever song we're talking about is new and she kind of then like not the red baron for example it was like a big thing and then it just wasn't suddenly maybe she's gotten over it and in the space between playing it a lot and the next time she finally does play it again in that space then it becomes a song about the fans or someone else is asking for mm. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's sort of like a transmuting. And this was really only the second tour where she had set opening and closing songs. Because mm-hmm. Dewdrop in Horses and Me and a Gun as the yeah. opener and closer was the first time that those were static and didn't change. Because yeah. on the first two tours, it was she kind of did whatever. That, yeah. She's like, maybe I'm opening with Sugar tonight. Who can say? Exactly. So she was yeah. still kind of figuring out what felt good, I guess. Can you imagine if halfway through Do Drop In, she started opening with Sweet Dreams for no reason? (laughs) (laughs) I really want to point out that I love Matt's drumming and the percussion here, especially that metallic clang. I don't know. There's something about that that I really love. So I think this was an experiment. Her last time switching it back as the opener. Like, Like, let me see how I feel about it. It used to be so hot. It used to be so heavy, so hard that we've really kind of fleshed out precious things. Does this one still compare? It totally changes the mood of the show at the beginning because this is very sinister, mysterious. There's yeah. like a long buildup, whereas Precious Things, you're like, she's going to blow the doors show. off the place. Yeah. Totally, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which do you prefer as the opener? Precious Things. Precious Things, yeah, yeah of course. That is, oh God, I'm going to use the word iconic, but that <laughs> that is the opener is so symbolic, iconic, whatever of this era to me. I love I you almost didn't use that. the word iconic after you <laughs> warned everyone you were going to. Iconic. I meant symbolic. <laughs> this is a performance from September 12th, 1998 in Portland, Oregon. And here's the little bridge section. The playing's really interesting. Yeah. 
What do you think, David? This is one of my favorites. I was there, and I remember really loving the cowboy section. She really nails it and gets I all gravelly with it. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good job, Tori. The last time she would perform Black Dove in 1998 was November 25th in Newark, New Jersey, which is kind of surprising because it's about five shows before the last show. Yeah, I would have thought it would have made one more final one appearance. Final appearance at like the last one of the Michigan shows. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. But nope. Farewell, Black Dove. <laughs> Fly away. <laughs> Until next time. Just like a black wing dove. We'll see you in space, circling around Venus. Speaking of Venus, in 1999, Tori Amos performed Black Dove eight times. Good for her. <laughs> <laughs> How many times did you do it? One. Zero. But it was really good. Um, the first time she did was September 8th, 1999 in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome back, Dove. My, how you've changed. In 2001, on the Strange Little Tour, Tori Amos performed Black Dove January a total of nine times. Nine times. And the first time on this tour that she performed it was again in Cleveland, Ohio. Isn't that interesting? Here's October 24th, 2001 at the Cleveland Palace. Is it with the Black Dove and the January and the Cleveland and the performing? Something going on there. That dove always lands in Cleveland. (laughs) (laughs) Something about its flight pattern. I don't know. What did you think of the performance? I really loved the solo performances of Black Dove in particular on the Strange Little Tour. I remember them being really powerful and just being kind of blown away by the way she was able to fill the space with just her voice, particularly on the uh, I Have to Get to Texas verses. The next one I want to play is from November 3rd, 2001. This is Dallas, Texas at the Bronco Bowl. And I remember I was there. This was an amazing show. And you can watch the entire bootleg on YouTube. And we'll probably do it once we get to the 2001 era. We'll probably do a live commentary track for it because it's an amazing, amazing show. There was something that night with tickets or something. The show started really, really late. Mm. And I remember them having to add chairs. I think they sold it with no aisle. But when they set it up, there was an aisle because there was folding chairs. There were all folding chairs on the floor. So I don't know. There was a mishap where there was not enough seats for the people. And it was crazy. It was like an hour late. She was an hour late out. Um, Anyway, she did do Black Dove that night. And it was great because she told a little story not about Black Dove. But we're going to play this whole little like interchange because it's the last time she's really talked about or 
alluded to possibly taking the harpsichord on tour. Mm. Here we go. Filling us with false hope. Well, um, sometimes when you're in Cornwall and it's raining, 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 you um, make new little friends. This is one of my new little friends. You can say hi. She doesn't bite. And that's another one of my little friends. And they're older than a lot of you. So, huh? Do I do what? Do I still play my own what? Oh, I'm a singer, I'm deaf. Uh, yeah, I have two harpsichords, and um, they might come with me next time. I have to bribe the crew because they're like more delicate than. Have you ever been out with somebody that's like, oh, um, you know, I can't have my sauce on my fish and I can't like, have ice in my drink and I can't sit next to this girl and I can't. And if I have, and it's like, oh my god. Well, that's sort of what a harpsichord is like. So, but. The thing about it is, you know, that's just tough. They'll deal with it. <laughs> Do you know I'm one of those people that doesn't have sauce in my fish or eyes in my drink? I just love it. <laughs> Yeah, but that black tub was great. And I have a stat for you, David. You ready for my stat? Hit me with a stat. I need it stat. 5'10", 175 pounds. Mm. So the stat that I have for you today, David, there is not only two tours. I want you to guess which tours. Every single time Tori goes to Texas, not every show she performs in Texas, but every tour that she's been to Texas, she's never gone through a run of Texas shows without doing this song somewhere on the road, usually on the first night in Texas. Sounds right. But there were two tours where she didn't do it at all in Texas. Only two. One was 2017's Native Invader, mm -hmm. and the other one was... I'm going to guess. Yes. Night of Hunters. No. What? 2005. You're wrong. She, no, she didn't do it in <laughs> Texas at all in 2005. Did she even go to Texas? Yeah, she went to Texas well, in 2005. What was wrong with her? Did she forget where she was? You'll see when we get to 2005 that she didn't perform it that much at all. So. But did she perform this on Night of Hunters? Yeah, what? of course she did. Okay. One time in Austin. <laughs> <laughs> that crafty minx. We'll get there. But I Slipped love that Dallas me. performance that we just played from 2001. But now let's go into Scarlet's Walk. More like a jog. I was going to say, can we pick this up to a jog? At least speed walk. <laughs> On Scarlet's Walk, Tori performed this song 38 times. Back with a vengeance. And she loved it in a first act. She loved it prior to Secret Time. Mm. You think she had newfound enthusiasm for it because she was back with the band? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it kind of, you know, it's the first song she ever played with a band in a live show setting. That's true. It's the bandiest of the band songs. It is. It's the origin story of the band. <laughs> Black Dove begins. I want to play one that's very special to me, David. You ready for yes, this? Yes, please. This tell is, me why. I'll tell you why after. Okay. This is April 21st, 2003 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Roll it, Ollie. Yeah, 
<laughs> you're going to so be okay. You're going to make it through this. That was an amazing show, first of all. One of the top five shows of my life. Mm-hmm. New Mexico is usually good in Arizona. It's yeah, mm-hmm. always good. New Mexico is always good because she plays there so infrequently. In this particular show, I don't know, she did three encores. It was really, really emotionally connected show. The venue was very, very small. The Kiva, I believe it was. And I had taken my brother, Harley, who was like 11 at the time. What year was this? 2003? Yeah, he was 11. Or was about to turn 11, so he was even 10. My God. Every 11-year-old's dream of a night out. Going yeah. to the Tori Amos show. <laughs> well, he loved Tori Amos because he associated her with me. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I mean, we were really close. But she signed his Little Earthquakes booklet. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he asked for Black Dove. Really? Yeah. Your 11-year-old brother mm-hmm. made a request. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Did you know he was going to request that? Or that he yeah. had a specific well, association? Made, well, so? to be perfectly frank, I made him write her a letter. <laughs> <laughs> you gave him homework yeah like you don't just get a song without putting some work in no he wrote the letter in the car ride i was like and we i mean we crafted it together but i'd already written my letter my own letter mm. so you know and i said you have to request a song what song do you like and he likes black dove so anyway that was a little special moment that's um, very sweet did you use him as a black dove beard because you no. wanted it you're like i know i'll get my cute little brother to ask for it how could she refuse <laughs> why do you assume he was cute because <laughs> you are <laughs> runs in the family good save <laughs> this is pbs soundstage may 2nd 2003 so several years after she's still playing it on tv In 2003, on the very separate Lotta Pianos tour, she performed it six times. And here's August 30th, my dad's birthday, August 30th, 2003, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Happy B-Day, Bob. That song was for him. He asked for it that night. The Shuniers love a black dove. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) The Shunior men. Black doves we all. very unsatisfied with our tour bumper for 2005 the fire crackle because you can't fire is really hard to convey in audio yeah it's just like crackle crackle yeah and i don't know that people realize i put the fire there because it was hot yeah i don't think that comes across because it sounds like a fireplace (sighs) right Mm. yeah what can we do instead (laughs) i don't know something sensual what evokes the yeah don't sockless yeah that's fine. Yeah, yeah. I have another idea. Okay. Just play a clip of Walking on the Sun from Smash Mouth because that's what it Smash felt like. Smash Mouth. A Tori Amos show. Could you imagine? Fine. Yeah, don't bluff. 2005 was the year that Tori decided not to play Black Dove in Texas at all. 
And the Texas people, it was like a slap across the face. It was. She was like, it's too on the nose. Like our state song, you're not even going to play it? It's like going to Baltimore and not playing Baltimore. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, this is August 31st. So here's the interesting thing about this performance. August 31st in Chicago, she messes up Black Dove. And she just kind of abandons it. And she's like, whatever, it was going to be bells for her all along anyway, fooled ya. And, and it's because she spotted Oprah in the audience and got so shaken up that she <laughs> couldn't even continue. I think it's because she slowed it down so much that she was shocked that the second line came immediately after the first line. <laughs> she lost her way. talking shut the fuck up and second of all she came back and played it after that because we had been working on that request actually for several days prior for lisa b who was in the audience that night for the first time that tour and tori was like okay lisa's here we're gonna do it right and so she came back out and did it again She also performed it in Morrison, Colorado at the Red Rocks Amphitheater a couple nights after that. And it was September 5th, 2005. Roll it, Oliver.
Tommy, why is that dove messing with Texas? Dove mess with Texas. The doves at night are big and bright. In 2007, on the American Doll Posse Tour, Tori performed Black Dove January 19 times. As part of those 19 times, it appears on six, count them, six legs and boots, David. Mm. That's three legs and three boots. <laughs> as long as they come in even sets, it's fine by me. Here is her performance on the 27th of October, 2007, in Detroit, Michigan, where she stops about halfway through to remove her corset. Not in front of the audience. Why was she wearing a corset? This was a Tory song, right? Yeah. Tory was always in like a sparkly jumpsuit. When did she ever wear a corset? A corset underneath. To keep everything trim and in well, shape. Why do we know that then? <laughs> like she went off stage to yank off her spanks. She's like, hang on, I'll be right back. Vamp. On the other side of the galaxy. Okay, stop. Just stop. I'm sorry. I have to take my corset off because it's choking me to death. Can you guys play something? Just play something. I'll be back. She comes back and does not finish Black Dove. Can you imagine being a Black Dove fan? So in the close. Yeah. <laughs> that would be my story of my life. Totally. So that was actually a legs and a boots. You can find that on Spotify, purchase it on iTunes still. Yeah, but go listen to that. Go support. Okay. We find ourselves here, David, in 2009, mm. where it's sinful and attractive. Just like me. She performed it nine times in 2009, plus one additional time when she recorded live from the artist's den, which we played a little bit earlier. So this is from Vienna, Austria on September 25th, with the sound of black dove she performed it in the 2009 2010 midwinter summer tour she performed it three times and this is paris france on july Night of Hunters, David. This is Austin, Texas. The only time she performed it on this tour, and that was December 21st, 2011. She slipped it in there. Got it in. She hit a junkie 
something that's really special to note about Black Dove is that she's never it's never taken a tour off. She's never not played it really. It takes the Gold Dust orchestral tour off, but that's I mean, so do most songs, you know? Do you think at this point it's mostly by request only? No. Does she randomly just whip out Black Dove? Yeah. Other than when the, she's in Texas? I mean, it's a really strong song, right? And I think the structure of it's really interesting and it's a crowd pleaser. <laughs> so, you know, it always gets a good reaction, right? Yeah, for sure. On 2014's Unrepentant Geraldine's tour, Tori Amos performed Black Dove January seven times. And here's the first time on May 14th, 2014 in Nottingham. Did you see this song in 2014, David? You know what? I think it's been a very long time since I've seen this song live. Really? In fact, it may have been since 2003. What? It's eluded me. He didn't go to Cape Town, South Africa on June 30th, 2014, where she did it at the CTICC Auditorium? I meant to. The Native Invader Tour. On 2017's Native Invader Tour, Tori Amos performed Black Dove January 4. Times, David. Mm, and you saw them all. I did see them all. Thank you for noticing. Mm. So I'm the authority on which was the best slash my favorite. Which one? Um, well, she performed it in, let's see if I can remember. She performed it in Chicago, Toronto, Washington, D.C., where like that weird casino and Atlanta. Mm. And my favorite was Chicago. Never forget your first. Never gets better than the first. Is that why? Because it was the first performance on the tour? Chicago is just a really special show. It was the only show in my entire life that I've ever seen with my sister, Matthew, who lives in Chicago. And he really enjoyed it. And we, sat, we had a box seat. I was given, I was offered a front row ticket that night. And I said, do you have two? And they said, no. And I said, then goodbye. <sighs> then we took our box seats. Did you have opera glasses? In no, we were really seats. close. It was oh. like really super close. Still, you could always be closer. <laughs> I know. This is the last time she's done it to date. On the 2017 tour, this is Atlanta, Georgia on November 10th, 2017. Here you go. We meet again, Black Dove. Soon, hopefully in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's all we got. We doved. We came, we saw, we doved. We doved, we saw, we conquered. That's better. <laughs> this is Up the Creek, the boy who can remix. We'll link to it in our show notes at songsoftoryamus.com. Uh, 
how do you feel? I feel like we're a quarter of the way through Choir Girl. <laughs> That's the truth. I know. That's the accurate way to feel. Oh my God. That's the precise, exact, accurate way to feel that right now, David. For once, my emotions are appropriate to the situation. <laughs> we have, what, nine more songs to go? Nine more songs. Nine songs. Nine. Um, we'll be back next time with Raspberry Swirl. But I have a question for you about Black Dove. Yeah. I have an answer. Okay. When you talk about Black Dove, do you call it Black Dove January or just Black Dove? I can't get past the click that you're doing. It's freaking me out. (laughs) Black Dove? I call it BD. BD? BDJ. BDJ? (laughs) No, you don't. I call it Black Dove. Black Dove. I do not include the January. I call it Black Dove Enero. Oh, okay. (laughs) Good. The moment of truth has arrived, David. Okay. Do I have to start telling the truth now? Yes. I didn't agree to that. Have you you decided what song I would be if transformed into tone and atmosphere? I've been weighing a few options. Okay. You're not going to like it no matter what I say. How nice of you. (laughs) Because it doesn't matter. Way to introduce it. I am going to say Marianne. Not because of subject matter, but because of strictly the music. It's good on the spot. You're good at improvising. You're subtle in your power. You don't necessarily reveal yourself all at once. Okay, you said you were weighing a few options. Lovely. What's <laughs> Beautiful. the other one? Beautiful. Comforting. I thought you said you were weighing a few options. Yeah, but I was going with all like the improvised songs like Bells for Her and Not the Red Baron or Marianne. I'll take Marianne. There are worse songs to be. And because like them, our relationship doesn't take a lot of work for me. <laughs> we just fell into it. No problem. Right. If you like what we do, please consider following us on our social media at Songs of Tori Amos across all platforms. And if you really like what we do, go ahead and throw us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes. But if you love what we do, if you really, really love what we do, head over to patreon.com slash Songs of Tori Amos and become a supporter where at the $5 level, you'll have access to our monthly podcast series, Tour All year where we take an old video bootleg and give you a new live commentary track for it. Mm. And sometimes we interview tour staples, people that are staples on the tour scene. So we do that for tour all year. And if you're a $10 supporter, you can hear our coveted Drive All Night Plus, where we're right now currently redoing Little Earthquakes, the next one being Mother. So head over to patreon.com slash songs of Amos and become a supporter today to help us to continue to make high quality and tourytainment for you. So pleased with self. Uh, every time I say it outside of that um, bumper at the beginning, uh-huh. I feel like I'm doing a live performance of the studio track. Well, you kind of, yeah, you go into performance mode. I, I see do. You sit up a little straighter. I do. You beam with pride. I do, but I have <laughs> to get to tourytainment. I'm basically like Tory that way. Ladies, gentlemen, and non-binaries, gender fluids, thank you for listening. They're not our senoritas. And on that note, I think we should seamlessly go into Raspberry Swirl for the binge listeners. Swirl it. Swirl, little girl. Swirl, little girl. Bye. Bye. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamis.com. Black Dawn.